Lights, camera, action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined as always by Keenan Bonner. Jack Harper will be joining us shortly. The matchup we'll be getting into this week is 1998's Saving Private Ryan versus 2014's Interstellar. The Matt Damon derby, we could say. Uh, how are you doing today, Keenan? Are you just have you just eradicated shoot from memory now? Well, he's not it's here, not, is he? Not ex- yeah, normally he makes some sort of comment. Is he just gone now, is he? Well, I mean, at some point, like... You've just got to let it go. It's, it's not funny to make the joke anymore. I reference on, on the pod, there was there was a couple of seasons with Liverpool and Chelsea, and I find Arsenal in that position now, where it wasn't as funny when you were losing games because it had happened that often. Mm. Um, and this is kind of how I feel with shoot at this point. Like, it's it's... It's actually more shocking when he's here. So, he's gone. Uh, he's he's gone. Really, isn't he? It's a shame. Yeah, um, we miss you. I was, I, was, I was speaking to uh, TK on uh, the way to watch England on Tuesday. I know uh, the less about that for you, the better. But um, I was just talking about last week's podcast, and because he hasn't seen one of the films, I believe, so he was going to wait till he'd seen it to listen to the pod. And I said, it was kind of a bit of everything, really. I said, I, uh, at one point, I believe we had a 10-minute conversation on our favourite types of custard. And so, <laughs> and so uh, it was just one of them, really, and it did inspire me to uh, get some James Pentry custard donuts as I watched Interstellar this week. So uh, They look good. Can go. I, can I, I meant to, I've meant to ask you, but I've spoken yeah. to you like six times, but the, <laughs> it's only now that you mentioned donuts you thought about. Do you have a few beers Tuesday? <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't have one. Oh, wow. He must have been hyped on England's top, top in the group. Why? What, what, what's going on? Daryl, when you FaceTimed me, I thought you looked a little boozy. No, no, that's just my uh, general sleepy face. Um, oh, I thought you look, looked a little drunk. It's not a criticism. I loved it. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm disappointed it's not the case, actually. No, um, um, I was kind of in a, I was in a weird kind of thing where I felt knackered. And on Tuesday night, um, I, on Monday night, sorry, I convinced myself I had covid um, I just like I just had this like ache in my arm, and I didn't have like any other way of explaining it. And then I felt a slight ache in my other arm, and I was like, "Oh god, oh god, it's happened." Went and did a COVID test, all good. And then oh, I stopped mate. taking after that, so I'm just making myself feel worse, really. I uh, I had to do one this morning for my return to the office. Yeah, vile. I've worked out that. <laughs> it's a good thing I'm not gay. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm not about a life. So. Those swabs right Hang on. Off. Where were you putting the COVID swab? Back of the tonsils, like you're supposed to. Oh, <laughs> when you said <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think they did that in China briefly. That was where they were doing their swabs. But I had to get the uh, like vaccine uh, passport thing, so I'm going to the Euros on Saturday. Um, it, I'm sure there's someone's job doing this, and... You basically have to, as part of it, record a video of yourself saying four numbers after you've sent your ID in. And all I could think was that someone's job is going to be just watching. Like I felt like an idiot for three seconds saying 2018. 
The only thing that would get me by, I think, is seeing how different people look from their ID compared to their selfie videos they have to send in. This sounds terrible, but is it? Are we talking mainly mainly blokes, reckon, or not? Well, I mean, I look like I've eaten the person in my provisional, so he's gonna have a shock when he opens it up. I'm surprised they verified me, to be honest. I have I ever I I've actually had that problem before. Um, on my passport, uh, I'm like clean shaven, quite really short hair. Uh, wouldn't have been August last year. Obviously, August 2019. Me and my brother took my mum to Spain. Yeah. Uh, coming back through, I, I had to. I had like limited limited holiday because I'd already booked some stuff, so I had to fly back a day earlier than my mum and my brother. Um, felt bad for my dad really because he was slapping Bristol Airport coming back, <laughs> and then about about eighteen hours later, he was doing the same drive <laughs> again. Um, but we come back through, uh, and I'm on my own, and this guy was just like, he was an absolute dick to be honest. But he, he did, mate. He was just a prick. I get his <laughs> airport security and all, but I'm coming through. I'm off the plane. What, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Like, t- like, actually have a conversation with me. And unless I'm the Daniel Day-Lewis of trying to sneak in... <laughs> I'm not even trying to sneak into the country. I'm trying to walk through the front door. Like, But he, he really quizzed me. And in the end, it was like midnight. I was tired. I had to get up for work at 8 in the morning. I've still got like an hour and whatever drive back from Bristol Airport. Oh, mate, I'm not, I'm not, not in the mood for this. He asked me a couple of questions in the end. I, I, fully, I fully snapped at him. And I was like, I, I, I'm really sorry. I doubt this. I was ever going to listen to it. But as I walked off, I just called, as I, I just called him a cunt as I walked off. <laughs> Excuse my language, but I, do you I, talk about being misidentified? I was so angry. Yeah, I know a, I know a lad that uh, lost a bet when he was on a lad's holiday and had to have his head shaved. But he had proper long hair before. And he got pulled into one of them rooms on the way back through because they didn't think it was him and his ID. Makes a change. Uh, if, if if I ever, uh, well, back in the day, wasn't allowed into uh, liquid or somewhere like that, which I once had a piss outside a pub and some Jobsworth woman got on the walkie-talkies to other clubs. I was like, don't let this lad in. He's got glasses on. He's got this. Took my glasses on like I was a super spy, straight past the bouncers. So, Daniel Day-Lewis, you might be on the pod for the second coming. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm glad I didn't get pulled into one of those rooms but like, I just looked to be honest I just looked like a tramp where like by the time I was walking <laughs> back through I had really long hair because I hadn't had my hair cut in a while um, and like, I had like the full beard I looked yeah I looked like a bit of a vagrant so I, so I see why he pulled me but I wasn't in the mood for, his, for that game I've watched too much Nothing to Declare to know uh, what happens when you go in them rooms it's very rarely good news <laughs> I will say I, uh, do you know what I just, I know it's a bit of a tangent, but we will do it. Do you know, like, um, do you know, like people make the joke show. about, about racial profiling at airports? Yeah. When I came back from Oz, um, yeah, when I came back from Oz, I had like a solo backpacker, just on me on my own, one white, we were walking back through Heath, I was walking back through Heathrow, just on my own, just full backpack, looked like a traveller, probably looked like, this was at the time that a lot of travellers were getting caught smuggling drugs. Yeah. Just quits. I'm sure they're still smuggling drugs. But I just know at that time a lot of people got caught because it was news in Australia and over here when it was where there's big like backpack communities and stuff. And people obviously so you did three years behind bars. <laughs> no, not quite. But um, going through, like, I was watching these people walk, walk through, walk through, like white couple walk through, white guy walk through, white woman walk through. Bang, bang, bang. Must have been about ten fifteen. But there was one Asian couple in this queue. <laughs> one Asian couple in this queue, and they got pulled. And I was like. <laughs> randomly selected and i was like this is fucking mental i'd never seen it before and i was like this is nuts they do that in the second harold and kumar when he does actually have drugs on him and they accuse him and he's like i've got them 
that he shouldn't assume that I have them. <laughs> it was mental. I'd never like seen it. I'd seen like the jokes on TV and in films and stuff. Like Harold and Kumar walking through. It's just yeah, it's all good, all good, all good, all good. There is one non-white couple, <laughs> and they get pinged and they're like, yeah, can you just come this way for us? I was yeah, like, oh, is. fuck me. This ain't this ain't the one. Uh, we'll get we'll, we'll get back to the pod. I mean, I'm sure we'll have a couple of tangents as we go through. When I was looking at this this week, I think, and I don't know if you'd agree, I think this is the first tr- true blockbuster pairing we've had in the bracket. Because usually the ones that we've called more fun have been more for being style clashes. I guess Toy Story mm-hmm. 2 and Django Unchained in terms of size, but Toy Story 2 wasn't really a blockbuster. Um, I guess Django wasn't either really. Django just performed particularly well. Um, Interstellar and Saving Private Ryan are two genuine blockbusters. Can I ask you? Did Inter- I should know this, uh, but as you know, I do absolutely zero research. Yeah. Did Interstellar win any Oscars? You've put me on the spot in something I should know. Um, I'm yeah, sure I, it did. I assumed you'd know. This is this is what you do. Um, yeah, because now it's even worse because it, it won five. Um, Jeez. Best visual effects, best original score, best sound mixing, best sound editing. And best production design. Oh, so nothing that anyone really cares about, basically. Uh, no offense to people who are involved in that field. It's, you can't make a film yeah, without it. That but... original, that original school one is big. Uh, yeah, but if you, when you think Oscars, no, yeah. you think you think best film, best director, actor, actress, supporting, supporting, a best screenplay. Probably, yeah, I guess seven. as as time goes on, the visual effects one is going to probably be bigger and bigger. Yeah. Probably, yeah, true. Maybe it's going to be like like the like the three point contest replace the dunk contest in most people's eyes, and maybe that's how things are going to go here. Hmm, maybe. But anyway, Saving Private Ryan. The synopsis here: Following the Normandy landings, a group of U.S. soldiers go behind enemy lines to retrieve a paratrooper whose brothers have been killed in action. Um, I think I said last week I'd never seen this before. I saw the opening scene or the the Omaha Beach scene in media studies. I think it was media studies. Or when Jack comes on, he may have to correct us. It may have weirdly been an assembly when we were at Crypt that we got shown it. Which it's definitely not Om- be... Omaha Beach for the record, but I know what you said. Is it not? To not say that Omaha. at the start? I thought Omaha Beach was in Japan. Does film not take place in France? I mean, I mean it may well be. I've, uh, I've written it down on my notes as... Uh, Hey, you might be right. Let's, let's Google it. I thought Omaha Beach was where they fought the Japanese. Uh, Saving like, Private Ryan, Omaha Beach scene. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm really sorry. I honestly thought... I've watched the film yesterday as well. Uh, Omaha Beach, ready? Yeah. You uh, just knocked your video on, by the way. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah. It is Omaha Beach. Um, yeah. So... Oh shit! My apologies. I, saw, yeah, I, saw that I thought I was in Japan. Fuck! I'm stupid. Russ, Jack, when he when he's on, I have a weird memory. Maybe it was in a, an assembly. I don't know what the message from that assembly would have been. Like, this is what could happen if you don't knuckle down, boys. Um, <laughs> I, I actually do remember this bit. Uh, you want about the? I've just jumped out there and jumped back yeah. in. But is this the assembly where they showed us the Omaha Beach? Yeah, um, that's what I know. I'd seen it, but. And it only just occurred to me then, so I just kind of put it to be a media studies. Weirdly, this may have been an assembly, like, we just watched this. Yeah, no, it was at Crypt, it was like Remembrance Sunday, or coming up to the 11th. And they were like, 
they, they put it on the big screen, which is unheard of in the school hall. Um, <clears throat> and she basically said to everyone that this is the most realistic thing that we can show you to so for you to understand what it would have been like. And I do look back at it and think, there's some lads there that are 18, sometimes younger, because they've lied about their age, that have to face that. Yeah, well, what the fuck have I done with my life? <laughs> they should have, like, bottom set maths, which we can joke about because we were both a part of at some point. Like, put that on the screen and say, look, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't start working on your multiplying fractions. <laughs> Mr. Foster would have looked good in a Hugo Boss Nazi yeah. <laughs> Um I probably should have said that you were kind of in the in the wings. Like I was painting this painting the picture. We were waiting for you to join. So uh, <laughs> yeah, Jack was like a voyeur on the sidelines. Uh, <laughs> I didn't but, want to miss anything. I love these films. Well, critics' reviews, Keenan. I, I do usually divert to you uh, in Sean's absence. Is this an easy one for you? Like, are you expecting good or bad reviews here? If you've managed to find one from two thousand, from when the film was released, that's bad. I'll be shook. I wonder if people have said maybe it don't age well, et cetera, et cetera, now. But from the time, but, I would be surprised if you could find someone that didn't The like majority the of these um, are from back then. And one thing, I wouldn't really want to live there for the most part, but like, if we both lived, like, if, if we could somehow have a little like Rick and Morty portal kind of thing to get to like Bristol Cinema, because in the fact that there's very few new films out these days, They've put all these blockbusters on, and quite a few actually fit in with this bracket. So for the ones that we've not seen before, it would have been a lot better to just go and watch these on the big screen because they're actually showing Saving Private Ryan at the moment. And so I bet they've... on this. I bet in the cin- I bet in the cinema. I ended up randomly. I watched this through my headphones yesterday um, through my PlayStation. I was playing. Yeah. I, I, I was playing Call of Duty before, and then I put the film on. And I, was like, <laughs> I, I was really apparently I was really into a, really into the war yesterday. Uh, into wars yesterday, but um, I, I happened to put on the opening scene, and I had my headphones on and didn't really clock it. But the surround, like the surround through my headphones, was unbelievable. And I was like, I'm yeah. just I'm just going to watch the whole film like this because there was like no noise leakage. There was nothing. That opening scene. No through the headphones I've, was impactful enough. I would love to see this at a cinema. I, yeah, I've got a bit on this in terms of cinema and in terms of uh, kind of the way the sound is mixed. And uh, so I'll give you that because I do think it's, it's certainly an interesting thing to get into. I think this might be one of our more technical podcasts we're going to do in terms of this bracket, but we'll do it in our own way. Um, critics review. So, one of the most impactful, immersive war movies of all time, Steven Spielberg's cinematic achievement takes us as close to the front line as possible, offering a human take on the chaos of war. An old-fashioned war picture to rule them all, gripping, utterly uncynical, with viscerally convincing and audacious battle sequences. I think, like, to go back to the review before, where I was trying to wrap my brains last night whilst watching this film, probably... I've watched it over 15 times. I, I'm sure I have. And I still don't know of a war film that is better than this. And this was made, what, in 98? The only thing that I know that really rivals it for me is Band of Brothers, and that's obviously a series, so... Don't mention that to Sean or Alex. You'll be there a while. <laughs> Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, I thought it was an unbelievable war film. I thought, yeah, yeah, it was brilliant. I just still feel that this has a different feel to it. 
Do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. This, this is yeah. better, but as an, as another war film, I remember. I oh, but yeah, if you're doing a bracket of like wartime war films, you're definitely right. It's, that is in there. Yeah, we watched Hacksaw Ridge at the cinema, and kind of as we always reference on here, we need, really need to get kind of a tag for it. But we had that feeling you have where you're like, this the is fizz. something special, yeah, that I've just watched here. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah, I wanted to do a war film bracket, by the way, Jack. Well, yes, we, we we debated, didn't we, as to whether we were going to have Hacksaw Ridge in this bracket or 1917, which is one of the, the latter <laughs> ones. And I think we both prefer nine, uh, say, uh, Hacksaw Ridge as a film, but 1917, kind of if you were putting together a, a checklist of what an adventure film is, mm, that pretty boxes, much is it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure, I mean, there's there's plenty of films and there's plenty of genres, so... We'll get to all of these films at some point. Um, Sean may have done a few more podcasts by then as well. I wouldn't bank on it though. <laughs> Not simply a 1990s classic or among the better prestige films of my generation, Saving Private Ryan is a stone-cold masterpiece ranking among the very best war films of all time. So as we just said. Uh, the film is directed by Steven Spielberg and breaks new ground in content and style emerges some of the most realistically disturbing battle footage ever included in a feature film with a touching human story. I think that's what they were trying to get at when they showed us the opening scenes in uh, that assembly that you're on about, because it's the first time you've seen someone's leg been blown off. It's not like, you know, in most war films prior to this, it's kind of, you get shot, your arms are thrown theatrically into the air, you go down with a big, ah... And then that's how you die in a war film. Whereas this is next one thing you sat there, next thing your legs aren't. And it's just, my, it's utterly brutal, but so brilliantly done. Criticisms of the film are two bits of the opening scene, which we've got the scene by scene we'll go through. It's a very small criticism, but uh, there's one thing that did get to me. So uh, I'll leave you in suspense there. Um, last bit of uh, Chris's reviews. What Steven Spielberg has accomplished in Saving Private Ryan is to make violence terrible again. Nothing in the movie's melodramatic narrative can diminish the shocking immediacy of its combat scenes. So pretty much kind of, as you've said there as well, uh, ties in nicely. I've trimmed the trivia to as kind of, not as little as possible, but... I want it as much as possible on these Well, I think I spoke to Keenan yesterday where I kind of said... The trivia I tend to take for here is ones that doesn't require any like outside knowledge. So when we were doing Harry Potter, it wasn't like uh, in the in the third chapter of the third book, there's this, like I kept it specifically to. Right. And some of the trivia for this was like, uh, in this scene, they appear to be shooting this style of bullets, but actually they would have been shooting this style of bullet. And it's like, that's one where I'm going to read it out and you open it. Oh, okay. And there isn't really much to take from that. So, uh, the first one, so Steven Spielberg cast Matt Damon as Private Ryan because he wanted an unknown actor with an all-American look. He didn't know that Damon would win an Oscar for Goodwill Hunting and become an overnight star before the film was even released. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it does look odd, isn't it? Like When you look, look back on it and you think, randomly in this field towards the end of a film, Matt Damon pops up and you're like, what? When you first watch it, I mean. Um, well, we've got it in both these films, haven't we? <laughs> well, yeah, there is that, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, I guess because it's like before Born Identity and all of that as well, so you don't really know the Matt Damon, but you're so right with the all-American look. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, 
I was thinking earlier and I was trying to kind of get a level and I was trying to decide whether I think I've liked Matt Damon's characters in more that he's been in or disliked him in more that he's been in. And for a guy that has that all American, as we've just said, I think I hate him in almost every film he's in <laughs> other than probably the Bourne films. Because yeah. I've said before that, uh, it was a film and it was called The Great Wall. It came out just after he'd redone Bourne and he did uh, The Martians. He was on a good run. The Great Wall is one of the, the worst films I've ever seen, one of the worst cinema experiences I've ever seen. But in terms of The Departed, well, it's hard to think of a character I've hated more than him in that. He's such a bastard in that. <laughs> him in Interstellar, which we'll get to, Another cretin. Uh, the ocean great. films. It's good in Martians. Uh, we, we've we've mentioned me in the ocean films before, Keenan. We won't do it again. I've not seen them. Oh, of course, yeah. House. At least you've watched Pulp Fiction, and have you watched Glorious Bastards now as well? No, no, I've not got there yet. Oh Jesus! Okay. I mean, he may be a bigger bastard than all in Eurotrip. That might be the standout one. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Departed probably tops it, mate, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, he irritates me in this film uh, when we first when I first introduced to him, when he's probably being a good guy, but we'll get there. Um, the Omaha Beach scene cost $11 million to shoot and involved up to 1,000 extras, some of whom were members of the Irish Army Reserve. Of those extras, 20 to 30 of them were amputees issued with prosthetic limbs to play soldiers who had their limbs blown off. Just giving them back for a second and go, this is what you could have. <laughs> now watch this fly 30 feet away from you. Randomly, this is a weird one. One of the extras is the guy who plays Moriarty in the Sherlock TV show. Oh. Don't know if any of you have seen it, but yeah, he happens to be man on oh, beach. I've heard very good things about that. Oh, it's, un- it's unbelievable, but that's There's a weird from phase a very where biased view. Benedict Cumberbatch was in everything. Mm, yeah, I do have a very biased view because Sherlock Holmes is easily one of my favourite fictional characters ever, so I will just watch anything that has him in it. The only thing that I watched about him and disliked was the Will Ferrell thing. Yeah. That is god-awful. I didn't even bother watching that. I read the books when I was younger, the Sherlock Holmes yeah. ones. I've read them many, many times. Um, when Tom Hanks' character tells the rest of the unit what he does for a living back home... His speech was actually supposed to be much, much longer in the original script. Uh, Hanks, however, felt that his character wouldn't have said so much about himself as we told Steven Spielberg, and he eventually agreed. And so it was uh, quite drastically shortened. I feel like as much as Steven Spielberg is like unbelievable, like legend of the game, that like Tom Hanks is one of the few people who can probably pull him and say, I'm not, not sure on this one. I think it's for the best as well. Like, oh, we'll yeah, get definitely. to the scene by scene, but like, it would be weird to not say anything and then suddenly like give your life story. Mm. Um, all the principal actors except for Matt Damon underwent several days of grueling army training. Damon was spared, so the other actors would resent him and would convey that feeling in their performances. <laughs> that, is, that is amazing. Damon, you're already getting that star treatment from an, from an earlier age. There's another story about this where they say essentially Spielberg told them like look if you all want to quit then you can quit but you've got to make that decision as a team and Tom Hanks insisted that they were carrying on 
<laughs> he essentially Tom. kind of said like if they're going to represent these people who did go through all this the least they can do is do three days of uh, putting their bodies through it fair play I respect that because I don't know what the training endured but I can guarantee you no matter what it is <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not doing three no. days of it. <laughs> no, I can't do monkey bars let alone me doing uh, no, three days of this army with. training I bet they'd have been uh, a lot less I bet they'd be a lot more kind these days as well probably get away with a bit more abuse back then mm. um tom sizemore was battling drug addiction during production spielberg gave him an ultimatum that he'd be blood tested on every on the set every day of filming and if he failed the test once he'd be fired and the part of horvath would be recast and reshot with someone else even if it was at the end of production sizemore agreed and managed to pass all of his tests shame He's then arrested a month after they finished filming. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a shame. I really like Tom Sizemore. We kind of covered a bit of that with um, True Romance, didn't we? Sure, it was him. Do you know what else is he's in, Byron? Go on. Heat. Heat. Yeah. Yeah, I think we did it because wasn't it he was going to play James Gandolfini's role in Almost Famous? Mm -hmm. And then he said he wasn't comfortable, and then it came out like a month later, he's arrested for beating up his missus. And so it's like, okay, yeah, I can understand. Maybe it just wouldn't have been a good look. Um, cinemas were instructed to up the volume when they showed the film as the sound effects play such a crucial part in its overall effect. So there you go, Keenan. As you said, uh, about having your headphones in. Mm. Yeah, it really works. I might, uh, I might make it my new thing. Well, Spielberg also requested that no one gain admittance to the movie once it already began, just as Alfred Hitchcock did during the release of Psycho in 1960. I I understand people coming in like during the trailers because I'm very rarely on time for the cinema these days, but usually getting just as the trailers are starting. I don't see how you're that late where the film's already started and you're coming in. That rewinds me. <laughs> yeah, same. It grinds my gears. I will say if the film's oh sorry, Joe, I was going to say if the film's supposed to start at half past, I'll give it a good ten to twelve. Minutes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But maybe fifteen. Right. I, I I don't really care about trailers. Twenty five thirty minutes before the film starts, and some people walk in like just as the titles are rolling. It's like, what were you doing for this time that was so important? <laughs> doing what I used to do when we used to go to the cinema, probably just going absolutely steaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather I'd rather forget that. I mean, it's a good thing Sean doesn't do that. We used to, we used to take bets. <laughs> As to how many how many pisses he'd go for during a film, I'm like when when you're looking at like a Lord of the Rings length film, you're talking three four times. You probably want to get your money in on that early. Mm. Steven Spielberg claimed that he considered the film a passion project as a gift to his aging father, a World War II veteran. He further claimed that he made the picture against his commercial instincts, believing there would not be a wide audience for a World War II movie with graphic violence. I was pleasantly surprised when it came a blockbuster hit. <laughs> pleasantly surprised, like I feel yeah, that's one sure. of them that sounds better after. Like you're not making a film like you know, people are just not going to like this. <laughs> Strange one. Um, mm. The film losing out to Shakespeare in Love for Best Picture Oscar is often named as one of the greatest Oscar controversies in the history of the award show. Many industry people attributed the latter's win to its producer Harvey Weinstein incessantly lobbying for his movie with Academy voters while attacking this film for its historical inaccuracies. Everything you hear about Harvey Weinstein is what an asshole it was. And yet I, I, it I took know. so long for anyone to kind of put their foot down. 
Yeah, but we've said this on the pod before. It, the block made himself indispensable to so many people. I know, but like, that's if like one person is kind of chipping you in. Like, if 20, 30 plus people are all digging you out at once, I, I, I imagine surely that, that should topple the beast. Did you know at one point, I don't know if this is still true, at one point more people had thanked Harvey and Harvey and his brother in their Oscar acceptance speeches than the thank God. Christ. No, I didn't know that. That's, that's a great stat. So please do please do your own research, but you want to know why? Well, that's why. More people there were would. some There were some bookies in America that used to take a bet on um, whether fighters would thank God or Al Heyman first. Mm. Yeah, same, same, same thing. Not yeah, saying exactly. Al Heyman's, <laughs> not saying Al Heyman's that guy. That's all. No, no, I don't. But, you I, but do you know what I mean? Indispensable people can't make a move without him. A lot of people yeah. couldn't make a move without him, and his brother. But you don't, don't hear much yeah. of or ever hear anything about the brother. But that's just another. I've got some uh, casting what ifs for you. So uh, Billy Bob Thornton turned down the role of Sergeant Horvath because he didn't want to film the Normandy beach scenes due to a phobia of water. Mm, fair. Billy Bob could have had a size more out of the job. You think he does a better job? Um, no, I think he looks more like he looks more like you imagine him more in the Tom Hanks role, and then I don't see him in that either. So mm. he he has a certain presence to him, and I know he'd look younger then because I'm picturing him as Bad Santa, <laughs> but I, I don't look at him and see him as being like a second in command kind of thing. No, I get that. Um, Edward Norton was offered the role of Private Ryan but turned it down to work on American History X instead yeah uh, yeah I don't think he's he's not made a bad decision now no um, <laughs> friend of the pod uh, Neil Patrick Harris was considered for the role of Private Ryan wow big NPH legend I suppose he would have been very young back then so yeah he would have looked just like your average kid, I guess. He would have looked in an army uniform. He would have looked like Steve Rogers before the super serum. I was trying, <laughs> literally trying to picture it, and that's exactly what I came up with too. No offense to him, and I for no other reason than it's like the guy who plays the uh, the, cor- oh, the uh, corporal who doesn't who, like only shoots the German guy. I can't remember his name. Um, only shoot, sorry, oh, yeah, sorry, that's it. Only shoots the German guy, brilliant. So I'm set in France in World War Two. Uh, shoots that specific German guy that I let go. I know the steamboat Willie, but yeah, but the whole point of it is he's so slight, you just can't. Yeah, and um, Matt Damon, he's, he's a fairly stocky bloke, you could see as a soldier. Tom Hanks, the same, but that I know it's the point of it. But like Neil Patrick Harris thrown in there as well, you'd feel bad for the unit before yeah. they even take their first step. Mm. I've asked this before, Jack. Have you? Did you watch Lost, or have I dreamt that? No, no, no. I have watched Lost. So, um, Upham is Daniel Faraday in Lost, because I was looking at him like I recognise you from somewhere. I recognise you, and I googled Squint, it, and that's who he is. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's. I don't know how well things have gone for him. He, he did a lot of TV work, and he's currently filming a, a feature called Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin. So, uh, sounds like a blockbuster to me. <laughs> The, the two casting what ifs that I think pop up more than any others over the last two seasons Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford were both considered for the role of Captain John Miller before Spielberg decided on casting Tom Hanks I just it is one of those casting decisions that is just much made in heaven Tom, they don't have a soft enough face no and that's Tom, Hanks, 
Tom Hanks, you can believe that he's this fearless leader, but you can also believe he is that school yeah. teacher. Like, he's just the perfect person for this role. I, I wish we hadn't watched Toy Story 2 as recently as we did, because <laughs> yeah. it, it took me about 10 minutes to get past that. You are a toy! <laughs> <laughs> Shouting that on the battlefield. Um, Steamboat Willie is the man seen catching and throwing back a grenade hurled at him by American troops during the defence of the bunker. And also, since he only carries rifle ammunition pouches rather than a machine gunner's webbing, he was certainly not the man who killed medic Erwin Wade. As the German soldier stabs Mellish to death, um, see, I've got down what he says in German there, I won't read that out, but it translates to, give up, you don't stand a chance, let's end this here, it'll be easier for you, much easier, you'll see it will be over quickly. Which is very dark. Yeah, I guess that's war though, isn't it? He's over his body shushing him, isn't he? Is that knife sinking in? Mm. Mm. Um, That is is a nasty way to go. Yeah. Every single person who inherits Capazzo's letter up until the final battle dies. Capazzo himself, then Wade, then Captain Miller. Then uh, Private Reuben takes it out of Miller's pocket after he dies, and it's assumed that he lives and delivers it to Capazzo's father. Hmm. Jack, tricky one for you here. Give me a prediction on the body count of this film. Oh, fuck. I reckon it's probably one of the highest we've done. It wouldn't have won the last bracket. Okay. Well, I'm going to go with... I'm also going to guess who it didn't beat. I'm going to go with 381 and it didn't beat John Wick Trilogy. Uh, it's less. It didn't be 300. So the, the body count was 255. I mean, that's still a lot of bodies. Yeah, I don't know if Spielberg just told him if someone actually counted that out. Fair play to them. Yeah. Um, that's a lot more difficult than uh, the Mr. Skin they try setting up in Knocked Up. <laughs> yeah. A lot more tiresome, I imagine. If we... <laughs> If we do the scene by scene here, so we've mentioned it a couple of times, if we start with the Omaha Beach scene, because there's kind of so much to get into there, um, the kind of description of the scene as far as YouTube goes, Captain Miller pauses to survey the pure chaos on the beach before regrouping and ordering his men to move on. So it's roughly around nine minutes all in if you go from them in the boats and the end of the kind of sequence is when uh, they're kind of, I don't know the right descriptives, they're kind of slumped up against the hill, aren't they? You've got the gunner coming down from above, and according to kind of the scene selection on the DVD and all of this, that's when it kind of breaks away from that sequence and you have more of a, a, a new setting as they're trying to kind of break the ground there. Yeah. Um, so kind of the, where they're trying to use the telephone and all that kind of thing there. Yeah. Um, Something that they mentioned in the critics' reviews, and I thought a good place to start. So I thought right from the first deaths, so the first deaths you see... Actually, no, if we start on the boat, sorry. So the first shot you see is uh, Tom Hanks in his shaky hands. You see guys puking. There's another guy eating. There's others just in dead silence. And I thought, as uh, I think you referenced before, Jack, and some of the critics' reviews, it's the best for kind of painting the real human emotions because as we all know everyone kind of deals with things differently 
And I thought it's great just in that little kind of sequence, you're seeing about four or five different ways of dealing with. They all look shit scared as you would be. Mm. But it's not everyone sat there biting their nails. It's not everyone kind of frantically talking. It's not over panicked. It's just kind of almost resigned to the fate which they very much could meet in the next two minutes. Yeah, no, that, that to be fair, mate, I think you've summed it up perfectly there. Well, it's, exactly. it's just different, it's... isn't it? To your standard all-American hero, which they try and pick out someone like Matt Damon. Yeah, and I think this is like the realism that we've kind of spoken about before, that it's the first of its kind where it isn't just a cheesy, not a cheesy war film, but like a war film that has a definite hero. I mean, it is these... They talk about it later on after they've gone through the beach scene where they talk about the brotherhood that is bonded between soldiers. And this is kind of the same thing as like dysfunctional family. You see them all fall out. You see them all like cry together, want to save each other, annoy each other. And that's, again, like war is this overarching thing, but everyone's a different person within that war. And that you're right. That landing ship is like a great microcosm of it where you just see everyone just having their final thoughts to themselves before they have to get their ass into gear and get up that beach. Which well, is brilliant. I guess a good comparison, Keenan, as you, you said you were playing Call of Duty right before you stuck this on. Mm. It, you get the war films that are Call of Duty-ish where a guy feels that he can, he can run kind of 100 yards to the next bit because if he takes one or two bullets, he's probably going to survive. In this, as much as kind of everything every shot towards someone feels significant in the way that your main characters really can't afford to take one of these. It's not the usual where <laughs> you perhaps anticipate that it's just a flesh wound as the yellow in Taken. I think we referenced it um, yeah. as, he, as he shoots the wife. Like Everything in this, it, it does feel like anyone can go at any time and also that it really is, it really is serious business. This is war kind of thing. I don't yeah. know how it's just not video game violence. No, 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 it, no, it, it's not. No, but that's why that's where all the praise comes from. There, you, the, anyone, this is a really bad way to say, but the fact that anyone can get it is part, yeah, of, yeah, it is, it is a massive part of the film. Like Tom Hanks, when when so when Tom Hanks dies, there's I don't know, it's, it's a minimal fanfare. You know, it's not, it's not particular. it's a dramatic scene, but it's not. No, it's it's not a dramatic. Sorry, it's a dramatic scene, a dramatic death. But him actually being shot is just oh, he gets shot. And he well, move, keeps trying to move forward, and he gets shot. It's not Joey doesn't run it in. It doesn't run it through slow mo or, or yeah. Well, there's, there's not a, a there's not a, like a score that plays right over the top of it. There are bullets being fired to his left, above him, below it, uh, like hitting the floor to the right, and people are trying to shoot him. Um, and then obviously he's there. The, uh, the the bit with uh, him trying to shoot the tank is quite, I suppose, is, is the overture, if you want, yeah. is where they pl- where they play to it um, that he's sort of like a hero to the hero to the last. Well, um, right as soon as they get off of uh, the boats, you see the first deaths of the film, and very similar to what you just said there with uh, Tom Hanks' death, is they shoot it in a way. Where it's it, so fast. It, it doesn't feel particularly significant. Um, they aren't made to be a big deal, which I think, I mean, I will say it kind of a, a lot here. It does show the gravity of war and kind of how minuscule each life is in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Um, because I wrote that down opening, here in. 
sorry. Sorry, I was going to say that opening once they get off the boat, it does slow as obviously the the conversation comes in. But that opening yeah. minute is so fast. You like, see six people at the front of the boat get taken by um, like the turret, yeah, uh, gun, and they're all just done. They're just in God, a heap, it, and then it's just it's so the quick. Next. There are people people collapsing, like people collapsing around this, like through the shots. It's second by second, mate. It's so quick. It's bang, 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 bang. For not as a pun, but you know, no, no. it's a case of it. What go? This guy drops onto it, and it's it's so quick. It's ridiculously well paced. It's like I, it, it. It does. It's like almost breathtaking, man. I wrote last night when I was trying to think of a comparison. Probably not not the best one, but I put that at the start of this, and in comparison to kind of deaths in other films, is every death in this opening sequence in particular it it's almost like scoring in a training match compared to scoring in like a premier league game because mm-hmm. like they're not even like you don't even acknowledge the fact that you've scored it's just turn around and on to the next one whereas kind of as things get more significant in other films every yeah. death is the opposite and you do almost celebrate that you're killing one of the bad guys or you have this grand like kind of testimonial because one of your main characters has been killed yeah. In this situation, it's just a body. You you mentioned Tom Hanks' death, and they shoot it from the it's different a, angle where they shoot from almost as the opposition. The, the shooter's shoot angle. Like, yeah. It's just another guy. Like this isn't to them. He's not Tom Hanks. He's he's not the captain. He's just another body. Giovanni Ribsy probably gets the biggest one, don't I? Yeah. As, as Wade gets the biggest one. Do you know what it remind me of? And I'd never made this comparison before until last night, and I'd seen seen this film a couple of times as he dies. It reminded me so much of Tim Roth dying in Reservoir Dogs or being on the floor, yeah. Uh, yeah. strangely. Well, I guess there's kind of a lot of comparisons you can take. And Jack, if I don't know if you'll think the same, I mentioned to Keenan that this beach scene here, and I don't know if they kind of took things from it, reminded me a lot of The Edge of Tomorrow. You know, the first scene where you, Tom Hanks, uh, Tom Cruise, sorry, in this case, is on the beach and there's just all of the carnage going on around him. And even if kind of subconsciously, I feel they must have taken something from that because it felt so similar when I was watching it back. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's with the fast pacing of it all as well, isn't it? It's just the utter carnage. And I guess with Edge of Tomorrow, you're kind of detached from it because it is seen as CGI, whereas this... Yeah. I would... would so love to see us on a big screen and I'm, when you said at the start of the film I'm actually tempted to go and watch it again on a big screen to get that experience because it really does put you in the shoes of the people that had to do this kids that are, you know, well, probably be 10 years younger than us on those boats and it was just I've never seen a film like suck you into the how fast paced and brutal Walk can be because usually with a cast they'll run through it build up the characters then there'll be a story then they'll die whereas this it's kind of like pan around just loads of faces names and just bodies flying hitting the deck everywhere and it just re- brings real realism to that carnage I thought it felt like sitting too close to the cinema uh, sitting too close to the screen in the cinema at first because the way they shoot it there is that much going on that you really don't know where to focus your eyes on so on a big screen I was thinking like this must be like carnage for you if you if you don't know where to look it's like a, it's like a where's Wally scene going on like you really there's so much within just this frame that I guess on the rewatch and you two will know more than me you'll pick up something each time you watch it because you probably will spot something in the corner of the screen because 
the amount of time, like 11 million, they pumped into this, which is even more back then, you'd imagine there's not one body on that screen that's been put to waste. And so there, there probably is heaps and heaps that you can take from it. Mm. Yeah. You said about the, the soundtrack key and having it with headphones on. And mm-hmm. I think that hearing silence through headphones almost does exemplify things further. And in this scene, they do maximise silence just as much as they maximise kind of how overbearing it is for your ears with all of the gunshots. For a start, gunshots aren't supposed to be pleasant for your ears, and that's something they've no. obviously taken into account here. Like It is overwhelming. It's not one that you want to watch late at night when other people are trying to sleep. But when they go underwater the first time, yeah. they give you that kind of 30 seconds of silence, and then they pop back up to the surface, and it's all guns blazing again. But it just intensifies things even further. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, uh, you are right. The silence is it's troughs and peaks, in it? or peaks and troughs, rather. Yeah. And it does it bring ma- you back up. And it means more when you do get it, because it's almost a relief f- for them as much as uh, supposed to be you in the moment. Yeah. The only criticism I did have in this scene, it's really one of my only criticism of the entire film, is there's a few shots where I felt like they'd obviously been pretty pleased with the visuals of um, like the intestines out when they've done that on people because you've yeah. got so much going on and there's a few kind of isolated shots where it's just a guy on his own, like there's space around him with the intestines coming out, which does still hold up very well today considering the time that's passed. But it just felt a bit out of place for some of them. It was like, look, we got these shots, we're going to put it in. I guess, though, it's that, again, it was kind of cutting edge at the time because, like I've touched upon before in war films, it's kind of the deaths are, you hear a bang, a gunshot, you throw your arms up and you fall to the floor, whereas this is kind of like, no, no, you get hit by a shell and death isn't quick and you're just gone. You this you suffer on the battle, battlefield. And I guess, as well, there's the bit in the opening scene where they have to go and find gather weapons and ammo and, like, there's like kids screaming there with their guts and arms hanging off yeah. and they've literally just got to leave them and I guess that again for its time brings home that brutality that you haven't really seen in war films up to this point my, my issue isn't with um, the, the visuals it's more just the placement like because it's that kind of stand out that you could even have like a pan shot across where you've still got people fighting and gunshots going that's still going to catch your eye more than anything else it just seemed odd that on a screen full of all this going on, a couple of times you've just kind of got nothing for a second and just just these guys. That was the only thing. Um, I've watched a scene a couple of times, once with headphones, Keenan, which so I do actually pick up what you mean there. Mm. Did, you, did you think there's anything to it? Not really until the last scene. Did they ever really paint a villain in this? They kind of do hammer home that, both sides really are trying to do the same thing to the other as soon as they have the chance. The only guy they really paint as a villain is uh, Steamboat Willie, and that's because obviously they let him go and then yeah, the other way around, he, he returns it. And I thought that was, for a film that is so American, they're not hammering down like, these bloody Germans, these uh, horrible Nazis the whole way through, yeah. which is what you would usually anticipate. Well, yeah, you are right. It's... But like they, they, I'm not 
for supporting or anything like that Nazi. But you think like Nazi Germany, you think Nazi Germany, X amount of them were fanatics, right? Some people were for there sure because they they had to be. Like the modern day equivalent was, I know a couple. I'm sure you you boys do as well. But I know a couple of lads who served in the army and we were in Afghanistan. Um, and basically, when they were in Afghanistan, they f- they found out that whatever price it was to be an Afghani police officer, the Taliban were paying more. Like, people were, like, people have got bills to pay. In a country that goes to war, you think Germany was economically depressed pre pre the war because of the Treaty of Versailles, et cetera, et cetera. People were, were sort of were funneled into that route via propaganda, via the fact that we'll give you, if the, Germany win the war, we'll give you a car. We'll pay. We'll do this. We'll do this for every every citizen of Germany. Yeah. People, we, we, there was, regardless of the the hatred, which I'm sure existed for, which uh, sorry, definitely existed for so many of them. For other people, like normal people, it was a case of you you had yeah. to go and do it. Yeah, like the draft, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the draft notices in the US. Oh, I'm being called up and I'm going. I'm going to war. Some some sure there were X amount of soldiers in the 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 American army. You, couldn't have cared less about the, situ- the situation in yeah. Europe, but it they just, they, it was their, it was what they had to do. It just caught my attention because almost every other film or video game kind of goes these bloody Germans, these bloody Russians, these bloody Arabs, like the whole way through, and yeah. it's kind of forced down your neck. Like we're the heroes, they're the enemies. We're trying to do what's best for the world. They're trying to ruin it, and in this one, they do just kind of say like, look, this is the side we're following. These are mm. the guys that are trying to get home, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, you're definitely right, and Keenan's 100% right, because you think that the fanatics would be in the SS, and yeah. the general infantry are just lads like us from like a little town in the southwest of England that's just been called up for no reason um, to go and fight this war, and that's a lot of what these German lads were as well. Like, and They didn't even know, most of them, what was happening to the Jews, because by the time they had all been rounded up into ghettos and into concentration camps they were already on the front line so it, it was kind of kept a secret almost from them and only the top dogs in the ss and the, the camp guards even knew what was going on um it wasn't until obviously the allies started like pushing back through um like poland and whatnot and they were actually start finding these camps i was like shit this is actually what has been going on yeah apart from that it was just a bunch of 18 to 30-year-olds have been chucked together and just told to fight for one reason or another. Yeah, You, you are next... right, uh, the, the way they humanise it, but there is... I, I think... And I know you are right, a lot of films do do it, but in terms of when you... Nowadays, especially, as the, even in the 90s, I suppose, maybe, maybe not so much nowadays as things have changed, and the, pre-2000, Germany was still... Like a, the big the big enemy, if you yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, not so 90, 98, you're inside, you're inside 10 years from from, from the war, war coming down, yeah. I mean, the, the eastern block, the old eastern block is still for is still crumbling and forming, so it's still probably more more apparent. So, I mean, does this film, it's just a, an actual question because I don't think it does, but I think, I think this film doesn't gain anything and doesn't need anything in terms of propaganda and we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. I think what they do with the opening scene in the cemetery and the closing scene in the cemetery, is if you were looking for propaganda and sacrificing heroes, that is probably about, you, you get away with just that. 
Yeah, I think it's weird as well because I've I've been there. I've been to the cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach and to like the mm. military cemetery there, and it is just the most surreal thing. You look down these cliffs where they've left some of the bunkers that were there. Yeah, you think like there was there's people landing on those beaches. There's people climbing up those hills, and it's not easy terrain by any stretch. And no, you just look at it and you think, how is this? A because now it's all overgrown with like foliage and bushes and stuff like that. Yeah. But back then, it would have just been torn to bits, and it really gives you a sense of reality. And walking through that cemetery and seeing the amount of crosses that are just in that cemetery alone, because that's only the U.S. cemetery that we're in. Oh. It's just I've never seen something so utterly grounding. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah, it does. The next uh, scene I had down, and it's kind of equally uh, intense but for completely different reasons um, was the sniper standoff so Capazzo's lying bleeding to death after trying to rescue uh, the child and take them uh, to a nearby camp um, and uh, Jackson is slowly trying to take out the sniper in the bell tower and you've got this kind of crossing particularly at the end of the scene where you can see through the two scopes and it's who's going to get the other one first and it's kind of the most edge of your seat, I would say, that you are in the entire film because the rest of it, the battle scenes are far more stretched and it's just kind of one long sequence. And a couple of things for this scene that I thought were worth talking about. Heavy rain, as always, makes everything better. Just makes it look more dramatic. Yeah. Um, Vin Diesel was paid 100000 for this, which was far more than he would have anticipated being paid for the size of the role that he's in. But Spielberg says that this role was literally for him. Like, he didn't want anyone else to do this. I think he saw him in a short in a short uh, kind of indie film that he'd done previously, and he was like, that's my guy. And he just kind of picked him out. And was like, this is, this is my Capazzo kind of thing. Hmm. And so he, he does this, and he really does make the most of the time that he has there. You can feel how helpless they all are. You've got the different emotions. The one of them, kind of, as much as it's your mate, you do get the, it is every man for himself kind of thing. There's no point being stupid here. Mm-hmm. I think one of them tries to step out, and he says, what are you doing? I don't want us to go and save you as well. Yeah, I've, I guess that is the whole thing thing of this film is this dog eat dog like you do what you do to survive and it's yeah it's not an emotion to it even when um Selma Willy or whatever his name is kind of at the end yeah, kills Steamboat Willy yeah Steamboat Willy he, he kind of shoves the knife through his heart again it's yeah the other guy would have done exactly the same thing and I think that's that's a different guy there because it confused me at first as well oh right okay no 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 I know what you mean but it's like you ha- if you notice in this film is that the ones that look out for themselves and try not to look out for others yeah. is the one that survives, which is sure. Uh, I've forgotten his name now. Um, Private from Brooklyn, and um, it's kind of that is a sense of all the realistic war films that you watch. The ones that just look out for number one are usually yeah. the ones that survive. The first thing that kind of caught me the second time watching it around all of these scenes I've gone back and watched or I've seen more than once um, as soon as he gets shot the first thing he falls on is a piano and 
I, I love that. Just the noise you have was perfect for the drama of the scene. Mm. I thought it saved them having to put like a soundtrack in that completely goes against every other bit of music that's in the film. But you get that sudden kind of jolt as if yeah. it's almost like an old like horror film. Almost that's what you'd have for like a jump um, about like decades before. And then I, you get the jolt and then I think he knocks it again as he's going down. And then more than that, then you just have the kind of soundtrack of, of the rain pouring in. I thought, whoever, whoever in history, and I guess we'll never know, wrote all different sections of the Bible must have had films in mind when they wrote some of these verses because they, they couldn't be more perfect for adding drama <laughs> to the scene. Like these guys, when they're reading these Bible verses and they're like lining up a sniper or they're hiding around a corner, it's like it was made for moments like these, and they do it so great in this, uh, in, in this film particularly. Uh, the sniper, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction springs to mind. Yeah, as well. <laughs> it's 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 so good. <laughs> it, it is like someone has looked ahead and gone, this is going to look great on a big screen someday. Mm. <laughs> and then for as slow and uh, kind of tense that scene is for it to end with him being shot through his scope, the kind of massive hole he's got through his eye is just a perfect way to close it out. Yeah, that's agreed. So that, that, I love that scene. I, I can cut ahead and tell you that that was my favourite scene of the whole film. I, I was already enjoying the film, but that was the one that kind of, uh, not theoretically, I physically like sat up when that scene was on because I, I was <laughs> locked in. <laughs> We mentioned Steamboat Willie, which is kind of what he's credited as. Steamboat Willie, for, for those that don't know, is kind of the first iteration of Mickey Mouse. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why he referenced him. I only remember it because uh, my grandma had a Mega Drive and we used to go around there on a Sunday and there was a Mickey Mouse game and the first level you play is as Steamboat Willie. But obviously you couldn't save games back then, so you'd constantly do that same level and I would see Steamboat Willie pop up on the screen every Sunday. So that's I know, how I know that- who he is. The exact bit as well. He's, he's whistling along, is it? On the yeah. tapping his toes. Yeah, yeah it's a great game. Um, so the first time we see him, we've mentioned uh, the death. Um, I can never get the actor's name right, so Keenan can jump in here and tell me. You tell mentioned me. It earlier the most the most dramatic death. I, I can never pronounce the actor's name properly. Oh. One in Ted. Uh, Giovanni Rubisi. There we go. Um, so he's died. We, we've seen that, not to, not to gloss past it. But Steamboat William, we get one of the first moments of the film where it's actually a dilemma. Like the previous moments in the film, there's no real, I would have done this, because there's nothing you can do. If you dropped in the middle of that beach, it's all well and good saying, I would hide somewhere. Where are you hiding? That's, that's not possible. In this situation, you do have the dilemma of, would you let him walk? Would you kind of take him around the corner and look, your mates died eye for an eye kind of thing? We get some great acting from the guy that plays Steamboat Willie and just kind of how desperate he is. He's quoting all the American things, butchering the American national anthem. He says, fuck Hitler. And you can see, which we see later in the film, how it's a lot harder to kill someone when you're looking them in the eyes rather than them just being kind of a, a target in the distance. And they all want this guy dead, but none of them really want to be the guy that does it. 
And you've got the whole kind of sequence there with Tom Hanks's speech and eventually letting him go. But I thought it was a, a great scene to kind of get into. Quite, quite obviously, I've never shot anyone. Um, but I can only assume the difference there is, like, there, there's a difference between killing someone in the act of war and then shooting that guy as he's blindfolded walking away. Absolutely. And I don't, like I say, I, I've never been to war either. And such would I will we'll, we'll never go. Um, but the, the the thing I always think, Tom Hanks actually says it late, later on in the film. He says about the, the everyone, every, each each person I kill takes me further away from home. Yeah. Um, I feel further away from home, sorry. I don't, you have to imagine if that's the case and that there's any truth in that, you hold any stock in it, shooting that guy as he's walking away would be the, would, would be the ultimate one. I, do, I don't know if there's a comeback from that. No, um, every film that you, you've ever seen, the, the cheat to getting out of being killed is essentially saying, look me in the eye as you do it. And the guy always, without fail, puts his gun down and uh, lets you live at least uh, out of that scene. Mm. Uh, essentially, this is what Tom Hanks is kind of making them do here. He's kind of like, look at this guy here, look him in, look him in the eye, and then he kind of makes the decision for everyone. I know they all kind of voice their frustration, but the look, the look you kind of get across them almost paints the picture. Mm. They're all quite happy they weren't the ones making the call. Yeah. Um, the scene then where we see uh, Private Ryan properly for the first time, Matt Damon, uh, he keeps saying it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Captain Miller eventually tells him what's happened with his brothers. He's had the, the, the practice try the first time around where he just says look I'm going to tell you straight your brothers are dead he realised that wasn't the best way to go about it and then w- w- we get this way around with Matt Damon and you don't know him at this point you're on the side of the guys you've been with for the previous hour and a half or however long it is Jack and you're basically just almost wanting to scream at Matt Damon through the TV and say just go home just <laughs> follow him and go home because he- he's doing your head in in that moment <laughs> I guess though it's the reality, isn't it? That that band of brothers feel, that brotherhood, where he has a duty almost, like just like the other guys had a duty to whatever they were doing before they picked up this mission. Yeah, yeah. Which they all wanted to stick to, and now he's pretty, and he agreed with all of them that why would you, why would you save me? I've got a job to do. So he's definitely doing the right thing, isn't he? Just from the perspective of like these are your guys yeah they say don't they um (laughs) they say two of our men died trying to get here and then he still is like why should i go in that moment you're not going to have to ask me twice to go home (laughs) yeah it's all right lads (laughs) nice meeting you i've said uh, I've painted on both podcasts we do too many times before about my experiences playing paintball for me <laughs> to be in any kind of stance here when it comes to uh, being in actual war. So uh, yeah, I've, I've got no, uh, I've got no leg to stand on, but it, it's a great scene because you, you feel helpless for Tom Hanks. You kind of do quietly nod along with Matt Damon as he walks back to his uh, comrades and then it's them setting up for uh, the kind of final battle that we're going to get into and, you know, pretty swiftly is coming. Yeah. So the, the, 
I had two last scenes down before we uh, continue on, and they're both Aussie part of the same sequence. The first one is quite brutally labelled on YouTube as Upham Fails Mellish, and you've got the two scenes cutting back and forth of uh, Upham cowering on the staircase as uh, Mellish kind of has the brutal kind of hand-to-hand fight that obviously ends in him being uh, stabbed to death. Do you think this one's more or less tense for you as a viewer than the uh, sniper standoff? First time round, it's more tense, and I'm still pissed off at him now. And I've watched like I said, <laughs> at least fifteen times, and I it's still just just go up there, just help him out. Get that hot. The thing is, he's, he's, he's frozen, isn't he? Like the whole thing is, he is literally frozen in fear. Mm. It is that's that is the reaction you're supposed to have though, isn't it? Like Fight scary movie. Is it Fight scary movie two where she's in the cinema shouting at the TV saying don't go in there? This <laughs> is like go in there kind of thing. Mm. It's it's rare that we get an extended kind of uh, fight between two people in this, obviously, because it usually takes one bullet and things are done with. And the way they do it, where they pan back and forth, and he's kind of going up one step and then they pan back and he kind of got his foot in the air like do I take another step and then ultimately when he just kind of sinks down as you see him get stabbed do you think he crumples so well like yeah the actual crumpling of him when when he dies is so realistic with the way that uh Upham's character is set up do you think perhaps once you've got past the opening moment of kind of fist pumping like yes go on he saved him do you think that goes against kind of his character for what it is because from for else everything we've seen in the rest of the film and kind of goes into why what you said being kind of every man for themselves he's not showing himself to be a man that's going to put himself into harm's way Uh, he doesn't know up there that it's a hand-to-hand fight going on he just knows there's two people kind of going back and forth no, and because they, they they run this narrative as well in Fury. If you've ever seen Fury, that Tank World War Two film, uh, I was told the ending while in the cinema, and so no, I, I've not I've not seen it. <laughs> uh, right, well, it's very similar, kind of like um, straight laced. Yeah. Hasn't seen war before, and then turns into an absolute maniac because Sorry, that's what yeah. war creates the person to be. Whereas. You can tell it was a bit forced to a degree, but it was the ones that turned into like raven maniacs, the ones that stayed the sanest in that moment. But then when there were down moments, that's when they were hurting the most because of their own humanity. So is it Mellish Mellish who got stabbed, yeah? So obviously... Yeah, Mellish gets stabbed up comes the guy going upstairs. After, obviously, he's been like an integral part of the team that storms the beaches in the first scene, then when the actual action stops, that's when he breaks down and can't deal with what's just happened. I guess it's the people like Upham that will leave the war with some of their humanity intact and be able to kind of get over yeah. it a little bit better, maybe? Well, in the in the next, well, not quite the next scene, but uh, almost at the end of this battle, the final battle we see is when he is supposed to be, I assume, the kind of he learnt his lesson. There's no humanity in war. This is how things go. They're trying to kill us. We're trying to kill them. He, he's learned his lesson. He shoots Steamboat Willie after he's then killed Tom Hanks. And we don't see it on the camera, but you get the impression that 
as I just said, he, he's learned his lesson. He, he won't be as hesitant to pull the trigger next time around. Yeah, and like, just to say about this scene as well, this has to be one of the best war film scenes ever. Just, and it's I in know tough company, you, do you think, by the fact there's the first one. Like, if you've not had the first one, we're, we're probably talking about this one. Yeah, and I know, and it's it, the realism behind it all and the tactics that are involved. Again, like you see a lot of kind of movie films where it's kind of like everyone just charge at each other, and then that's what happens. But it's the hiding away when they needed to, finding places to take cover, like running between the buildings. Like, are they? Gonna, is the tank going to take the bait? Got someone spotting and calling down how many there are from the bell tower. It's just. Again, so immersive, like that well, you was, just imagine it happening that way. There was some criticism for the uh, sticky bombs and the way they're done in this, by the way, that they kind of stick them onto the tires and they throw them at some points. And then some historians and you know, some people that were in the war actually had to come out after the film came out and said, All of these people who are saying it's not realistic weren't in this situation. Like these things were happening. Mm. Like this is a completely accurate thing that they're doing here. Yeah. So they had to kind of quiet a few people down because they tried downplaying this scene and kind of writing it off. It is like necessity is the mother of invention, isn't it? If you've been out fighting a war for God knows how long, like people think there is like Call of Duty and you can go around just finding like magazines on the floor with bullets. In. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you've been holding a bridge for like the last three days against constant fire and you've used all of your ammunition and literally all you have left is like, a few rifles, a few bullets, and then just a few bits of explosive. You have to get creative, don't you? It's, I guess that's, I know I know. I attribute a lot to back to the Band of Brothers, but it's all about Bastogne and the when they were like cut off and what they had to do to kind of ration their equipment so they weren't overrun. And it's, it's similar here where like there aren't just resupply drops every five minutes in the Second World War because it's such a vast thing that's going on. Films have uh, truly made me believe that if I'm ever in a combat situation, I could reel off a Molotov like very quickly. Yeah. Like if, if I need to, like this is something that I can truly kind of keep in my back pocket. Like <laughs> if I need to, I've got this skill here. Um, and maybe sticky bombs <laughs> are, the, are the next way to go. See, that's the thing as well. When you first see the guy with the first sticky bomb and he tries to put it on the tank and just explodes, you think like they've got this secret weapon here. So, oh no, 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 they don't. No. Like, that, that is, again, the brutality of like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't just not work. You will die probably as well if it yeah. doesn't. The, the last scene I had down, and we've referenced it a couple of times, Captain Miller's last stand. Uh, he's severely wounded. He takes his final stand against an approaching tank. Um, I mentioned at the start just that the way they shoot the scene of him being shot by Steamboat Willie, almost from the other perspective, was one of my favourite things the first time around of watching the film because I was just it's the complete opposite of uh, Boromir's last stand in the Fellowship of the Ring mm. where this is your guy he's going to go out in like a, a ball of flames and this time around it's almost like he he's not our main guy bang now you deal with it we'll go on to the next one yeah and that's what I love about this film is that there isn't that we've touched on earlier, that Americanization of heroes and villains. It's just when everyone starts getting it at the end, they all just start getting it. And that's what happens to a lot of people and their friends where half an hour before they had six mates that they'd spent like a year at war with 
and then it could well be that within 10 minutes they're all gone and there's no like ceremonious fanfare it was him kind of crawling across that bridge and just getting shot because he was in the line of sight and it, it's one of my favorite like main character story deaths in just because of that reason of the it, almost the insignificance of it when actually it's not unless it slipped my mind there's never a point of any celebration in this film, is there? Like, there's not your standard, like, we won the battle, we can celebrate for tonight, and then we move on. There's always, any time even they've kind of emerged unscathed, it's very much the Thanos, uh, but at what cost meme? Like, yeah. you don't see, even at the end of the film, where traditionally they would have some kind of, uh, we won the war, like, good on us. I know we lost a couple of men, but yeah, we did it. You don't have that. They kind of, like... It the war rumbles so on. Like no yeah. one won. Like no one won here. <laughs> I think it kind of goes on from there. That that's the thing, isn't it? It's not so much about winning or losing in this film. It's about the survival of just getting through it. Not in like the moments where you'd usually see in a film of like adulation, where they're going crazy and excited. It's more of just realization of just what's happened and thinking, shit. How long is how, how long is this going to go on for? Because <laughs> at this point, what's nine. 1944, wasn't it? D-Day yeah. So they've been at war. Well, the Americans haven't been at war that long, but war has been going on for the best part of five years, and it's still got another year to go. So the the only thing that really uh, kind of annoyed me is harsh. The only thing that kind of got to me with this film is uh, the way they kind of sell it as a flashback in the first scene where you have the old man walking towards uh, the memorial site and then it kind of fades out into the beach scene and then you're led to believe the whole film as I guess Spielberg intended you're meant to think this is Tom Hanks the whole way through and then at the end it's like surprise surprise it was Matt Damon the whole time Is it? does it bother you because they sell it as a plot hole and then the whole time around like he wasn't there at that point they asked Spielberg about it, and I don't know if it's something that he perhaps just overlooked because he tried explaining it away as, oh, well, he may have heard the stories while uh, they were together kind of thing. Like He doesn't say, well, look, I didn't say it was a flashback. I'm just showing you that it still troubles him all this time after. He kind of tried explaining his way out of it. If you Google Saving Private Ryan, some of the first news stories are kind of flashback plot hole and that kind of thing. Hmm. Do you think the film... Is affected. Sorry, you think the film's affected if you don't have the opening with the old man, and it still fades out from Matt Damon's face to the old man at the end. But I feel that would still have the same effect. No, I I, I feel that the film doesn't lose anything for that, and it's the first time I've really considered it in all the times I've watched it because I feel that you see if he's talking to a random cross and it doesn't follow Tom Hanks's character from the start to the finish. Like, and when he says at the end, earn this, and yes. like, he's there with his entire family of like two, almost two, three generations of... Tell me I'm a good have man. I, yeah, have I earned this? And you wouldn't understand the relevance of it if you hadn't seen the trials and tribulations of the, the Beachlanders. Now, don't get me wrong, they've seen an opportunity here to do a really amazing Omaha Beach Landing-like yeah. scene, and they've took it and ran with it and created a brilliant scene there. So no, I don't feel like I, I knew they wanted to create this scene, 
But I still oh, feel that there wouldn't be the like, same gravitas if they wasn't talking to John Miller's cross, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that my yeah, my point wasn't just in case anyone thought I wasn't saying scratch like that scene at the start. I just meant the old man walking at the start, like I thought it would still have the same impact. Oh, if it's, I see. If it's Matt Damon fades out and you've got the scene with the old man at the end, it's just not him at the start to create the kind of is it, is it, is it, isn't it Tom Hanks kind of thing. But mm. I guess it, it didn't stop me enjoying the film. It was just something I had to Google after, like, was that who I thought it was? Have I kind of read this wrong? Mm. Um, but there we go. If we go on to the categories before we uh, go on to Interstellar. Uh, Keenan, this is a, a two-hour, 50-minute-long film. Both films happen to have the exact same runtime, actually. Do mm. you think this is a rewatchable film? Um, once I start watching it. Does that make sense? I know exactly what you mean. You have to... Uh, I guess you're kind of saying if you just need to put it in front of you, basically, and then it's rewatchable. Yeah, it like you're not going to pick it out of your DVD lineup and no, nah, that's frequently. exactly right. I would if I was stuck, stuck for if I hadn't so before watching it for the pod. Say if we were talking Sunday night, if I was stuck for something to watch, I would have scrolled past this on Netflix. But had I have been had I a bit walked into the room and it was on TV and I was I would I mean I'm like all in pretty quickly. There isn't really it, many minutes of this film you could show me. I'm not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to sit and watch this now. It's an easier comparison this week by the fact that they are both two hours 50. I do think, and I've been quite consistent with my rewatchable takes, that it's hard to call any film that's nearly three hours particularly rewatchable just because you don't often have three hours spare to sit and watch a film. But in terms of, and as ridiculous as this is going to sound, if you take the runtime out of this, of your rewatchable checklist, it does tick all the boxes. Like it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not particularly hard to follow for all of kind of how deep some scenes are. You can make this an easy watch if you want it to be, because you can kind of tune in and out as I guess you kind of said there, by if you can kind of put it in front of you, mm-hmm. it's not one that you need to be kind of honed in the whole way through. As we've done the last couple of weeks with the other categories, should we do it once we do it as a whole afterwards and go on to Interstellar? Yeah. Sound. Let me just uh, scroll down on my list. Okay, so Interstellar then. Uh, synopsis. A team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. I imagine, Keenan, won't get your opinion yet. If you see that synopsis, that's kind of a scroll straight past for you. Yeah, I yeah. <laughs> I thought it might be. Um, critics reviews, Jack. Do you think good or bad? I think good. I'll take you through it. Interstellar is not only a grand space adventure worthy of the big screen, it's also a powerfully emotional story about the bond between a father and daughter and how that love can drive one to attempt the impossible. Uh, Interstellar is 120 minutes of good movie stuffed into 170 minutes. Uh, it's as grand as it is introspective and as grounded as it is existential by the end of the nearly three hour running time it goes by in a flash you feel as if you've experienced something that is so rarely captured on film did it feel like a flash for you Keenan? no sir I'm I'm digging it out like you dislike it I don't think I'm uh, breaking any uh, great secret wall here You, you didn't dislike the film unless your mind has changed from when we spoke (laughs) 
Last no, time. but I feel like the film had the benefit that I genuinely assumed I was going to hate it. I didn't have many expectations going in. I guess I have a, a Sean to thank here in Rarity because right as I told him I was about to start it for the first time, uh, he told me, yeah, I don't like that film. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it was to the point where I was do I carry on? Because it is quite a commitment, obviously, to sit and watch it. But no, I think it actually helped me in the grand scheme of things also. But we'll get into our thoughts of the film later. Um, Christopher Nolan more than deserves however much money the studios are willing to keep giving him to make these brainy, beautiful blockbusters. I do find it incredible how he keeps churning out these, (laughs) just the mind he must have to think of Interstellar and Tenet. Like, Tenet was hard to follow for me. Yeah, Tenet's a black mark for me. I like, like, strange, thought-provoking films, but even that was, like, pushing the boundaries from... I think it was harder because I couldn't watch it with subtitles and the soundtrack was just <laughs> so loud and the speech was so quiet in a film that was already so difficult to follow. I just thought I'd like to watch it again with subtitles. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll do a pod on it someday, but I think my review of it at the time was that Nolan's ego was actually beginning to be boosted by people saying they didn't understand his films. So he was like, right, well, you thought that was tough to follow. Try this for size. Uh, Interstellar is an ambitious story. And while the theme of love transcends time and space is a bit shoehorned into the script, it still rings true. Matthew McConaughey delivers one of the finest pieces of acting on film. I thought he was brilliant in this. He is. I've got a little tidbit about uh, how him and uh, Nolan met, actually. Finally, Naturally, Nolan's desire to unite high and low culture doesn't always pay off, yet even when he gets pretentious, I don't hate him for it. Better a filmmaker who fails while overreaching than one who has a hit with Transformers. Keenan, I feel they're taking a shot at your boy Michael Bay there. Well, I mean, they're absolutely taking a shot at Michael (laughs) Bay. There's no feel about it. He's literally referenced a Michael Bay film. Um, is Is that true? Uh, I I understand what they're saying. I would rather you you shoot for the stars than play it safe on most occasions. But then I also you feel I know what I'm getting. You sit and bitch about films that shoot for the stars and fail. It's pretty much sixty percent of our pod. No, what I'm about to say, my I don't have criticism of Transformers because I like films where I go into a Transformer film knowing I'm getting a Transformers film, but. I don't want to go in. I don't want to go and sit through Interstellar and see the same five space films I've seen already. I do. I, I do admire that it's something a bit different to what I'm used to. So I, I like both in the right film. Yeah, I was, I was sorry. I was going to say, does subject matter matter? Matter does sub is subject matter important in that statement? Because do you depending on what the film's about? Yeah, because Tenet felt to me like it was it was complex for the sake of being complex, whereas I don't want an isn't Interstellar just... where it isn't that. Like Interstellar without it is going to be cartoony. It's going to be kind of uh, like the kind of films uh, Sylvester Stallone makes in like 2015. Like it's going to be that kind of sci-fi film. That's not why I'm sitting through this for. So I, I'd rather he shoots for the stars. Mm. I, I, I suppose it depends what you're after, mate. I, yeah, I, I basically I, just took that down. I, I enjoyed the little shot of Michael Bay, so I thought I'd uh, 
keep I've it said for your many, benefit. Said many times on the pod that as much as I love cinema and will watch all types, I have no problem with lowbrow cinema. What, what no, no, that's why I said. Depending on the film, I like it. I don't. I don't. As I said, would never back down. Like I like it because it's not meant to be anything more than what it is. And it, it, uh, Interstellar is supposed to be more than a Transformers film, which the person obviously doesn't like Michael Bay. Um, not much trivia for this one, as the same kind of reasons I referenced earlier. Um, theories about time and space. I, I didn't think this was the podcast, as much as we've got the brains for it, <laughs> us to be uh, debating the likes of Stephen Hawking, probably uh, we'll do another podcast on that. So I've got under 10 pieces of trivia here, although one's considerably longer. Um so Steven Spielberg, who was attached to direct this movie in 2006 and hired Jonathan Nolan to write the screenplay, chose other projects instead. In 2012, after Spielberg's departure, he kept hold of it for six years, Jonathan Nolan suggested the project to his brother, Christopher. And this is what we got. Um, Anne Hathaway suffered from hypothermia while filming in Iceland due to the fact that her astronaut suit was open while filming scenes in the icy water. Jeez. I don't. I don't want to be too. I don't want to be too piggish on this pod, um, but I'm allowed to be. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, I messaged Keenan during this, Jack, when I was watching. I think while well, he was watching Interstellar, actually, and I said, like, I can't wrap my head around the Anne Hathaway we see in this being the same woman we see as Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises. Like, <laughs> and he said. I mean, can I quote you, Hickin? They said it's it's, it's the long, long hair, hair and leather, leather, leather suit. Yeah, and I replied, I replied like I look at her as if she's got like a different face in this. <laughs> Dark Knight Rises, like it doesn't make like any sense to me. But I hope there are people listening that are kind of nodding, like I kind of know what you mean. I do kind of get you. Maybe we'll put it down as range. <laughs> we'll put it down as range. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you want to be taken more seriously, I guess, trim your hair. Keenan, um, big question for the day. Uh, could could Catwoman have short hair? Did Halle Berry not do Catwoman with short hair? I'm not sure. The less, uh, the less I remember about that film is the better, I think. No, just... Um, I think... I, I think Anne Hathaway looks... She looks she's meant to, is the point. She's meant to look... Catwoman's yeah. supposed to be a femme fatale. She's, I'm trying to find a way of saying it. If you don't, yeah, want to, you, if you, you, you you put it nicely. If you don't want to be piggish, I'll take your I'll take your lead. I have less I, mean, I have less I have less objection to being a pig. Well, um, me not wanting to be piggish about Interstellar is as I ate a box of custard James Pantry's custard donuts while I watched this. <laughs> yeah, I didn't um, realise I had some crumbs of sausage roll on my chest until about an hour into the film. It was one of those kind of days. And that was only because my fan blew it off me. Um, Writer, producer and director Christopher Nolan earned $20 million and 20% of the gross for this movie. Nice. I wonder what his brother got. It seems like his brother's done a lot here. He wrote it and then brought in the film and then he's off it. Then he's taking 20 mil plus 20%. I don't know if um, Jack has listened to last week's podcast yet. Just to pretend you have, Jack, uh, if, if, if you haven't. Um, was it last week you know, they said Spielberg had like a quarter of a billion from Jurassic Park it was wasn't it yes mate yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the 20 million here I mean maybe he was underpaid 
Hold on. What was the gross on Interstellar? It's going to be sickening, but <laughs> it was less than... Uh... It is less than a quarter of a billion. You're correct. According to yeah. this gross at the box office was 701.8 million yeah. so he still he still he still what to have a call 60 mil but he still i mean i in the grand 90 mil is a very is a vast difference but for sure i feel like it's less there's a bigger difference between 16 and 25 quid so well, for all of that to, they say after kind of all their expenses uh deadline hollywood estimated the film made a profit of 47.2 million it sold an estimated 22 million tickets domestically. Mind, they say it made a profit of 160, 140 million of that profit. What would have been profit, sorry, has just gone to Christopher Nolan. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's so the the, the profit there uh, is quite, is quite something. So, if, if you're prepared to listen to me ramble a bit here, I do actually have um, the complete plot of what the steven spielberg version would have been and it's it's almost an entirely different film so i'll take you through it so some examples include murph being a boy no humans are first sent into space probes are and the probe leads cooper to the hidden nasa base which is on a remote island in california where brandon cooper deep sea dive for parts uh the robots are much more human-like featuring hands and shoulders Tars is sucked into space early on when the ship gets stuck between two black holes, um, which are named after French mythical giants. Uh, Afterwards, the crew, including an additional member named Roth, only visit the ice planet where they discover that a Chinese mission had been there around 30 years prior and seemed to have vanished until it's learned they were killed by the radiation of a neutron star. The crew falls through the ice into an entirely different ecosystem with a living, rearranging forest and colonial organisms that fight each other every night, compounding into larger organisms to reach a higher spot closer to the ice sky for sunlight in the day. After searching the area, they find an abandoned Chinese camp with an experimental black box that can control gravity and are then discovered by Chinese robots who sabotage their return home with that box. The crew orbits a black hole for hundreds of Earth years before entering a second wormhole where they interact directly directly with the fifth dimension bulk beings who lead them to a 4,000-year-old space station built by the Chinese that's only a few hundred years old due to space-time relativity and is powered by a mini black hole. The Chinese have built thousands of wormholes and tried to travel back in time with the gravity technology to save all of Earth but died in the process. Cooper returns to Earth in the year 2230 to find a barren land with ice storms. He sits down prepared prepared to die in the storm, then awakens in a manner similar to the movie where he meets his great-great-grandson rather than an aged Murph. After being bored with the new world, Cooper steals a ship to find Brand. The two had been intimate before Brand left Cooper to continue to explore space rather than return to Earth. Uh, There you go. (laughs) That, that That was the plot. Literally wow. Interstellar by name and very little else. That's like Interstellar meets Jurassic Park. Well, kind of. Do thing. you now want to see some evil Chinese robots? <laughs> I mean, with I, hands and shoulders. I feel that Interstellar is, is one of my favourite movies. I absolutely <laughs> love it. And I wouldn't change it, but I'd kind of like to see that movie. <laughs> what? I was reading it and I. 
hopefully I, I read it in, a, in the same way where you're kind of like, this can't get any more weird. And it's like, they fell through the earth into another ecosystem. And I was like, right, okay, this is what, this is what we're doing. <laughs> so that, that's actually all the trivia for this film. So uh, very little that is worth us talking about, essentially. Um, the scene by scene that I had down, Jack, um, I don't know, and you can jump in with any others. The first that I had down is kind of a standout scene was them visiting slash stumbling on uh, stumbling upon NASA. Yeah. I, I like how you think it's a very sinister start. It turns out to be like, no, 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 it's, it's NASA, you found us kind of thing. He laughed, the, the guy laughs, doesn't he, when he says, um, I want reassurances that we're getting out of here, and they kind of crack up. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, I like this. It's really funny because this whole movie is a completely different movie if you're not listening to Michael Caine for about one minute 30. <laughs> like, you don't understand the reasons why they have to leave the Earth. You think it's just dust. Um, kind of like, do you not think a film that's two hours, 50 minutes long they probably did shorten that at some point as well to kind of like we did uh i can't think what film was it we did recently well, uh it was ferris bueller actually you weren't on that pod but essentially uh the film was like two and a half hours long at first and so they they had these additional fourth wall breaks where basically they could cut out like half an hour of narrative at a time by just explaining it away and kind of like what you've just said there michael kane just does his little thing for you like this is what you need to know like a star wars intro just put everything on screen for you mm. no i agreed but it, i remember watching it for the first time and missing it and i didn't know why they actually had to leave <laughs> well i was gonna ask i should have started with it actually do you like that it's kind of unexplained and unless I've missed it, but I, I've read a couple of things, it's unexplained kind of as to why this is happening. Like they kind of just leave that. It, it sounds like it's a natural kind of disintegration that the world's having. You don't need a great big build up like so long into the future. The the world is decaying. The people need to, yeah. like, they just kind of like, all you really need to know in this situation is the world is no longer going to be inhabitable soon. We need a way to sort things out yeah no I, I much prefer it that way i think it's better that way it's almost the fear of the unknown isn't it i like like the scientific explanation between the blight breeze uh, nitrogen and we don't and all of that yes yeah. nitrogen than there is oxygen etc etc and yeah I, I basically in one minute 30 it gets found out that you need to you need to learn how to leave earth and learn how to take heaven with you now essentially yeah. is what they're saying I will say again, and Keenan, I'll go, I'll go to you for this. Um, for years and years, people have slated Sir Adam Sandler for using the same cast in his films. When the more films we do, whether it's uh, Tarantino, whether it's Nolan, everyone has the actors they want. Just It just so happens that Adam Sandler's aren't quite the calibre of, say, Michael Caine or uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, I mean, you've, you're answering your own point, mate. I know, but it's still just getting his mates on board. No, I don't. I've never. No, I don't. Uh, trusty maybe, hands. There's some that I don't particularly like, but that's literally what it is. 
it's a bit different, no offence to him, but it's a bit different casting Michael Caine to casting Kevin James. <laughs> Do you know what, what I mean? About Sha- what about Shaq? He gets Shaq in a few times. Uh, he does get Shaq in a few times. Um, and I'm yet to see Christopher Nolan cast Stone Cold. So he's missing <laughs> out there. Yeah, I mean, like, what the? I don't think for, I don't know, I assume at some point maybe, but for the last X amount of years, I don't think anyone has ever complained about Michael Caine being in a film. No, no, it's just whatever you see, if you read kind of online criticism, you'd think Adam Sandler's the only guy that casts the same, the same people across several films. I love Sandler for it. He, so he's mate, coming out to defend j- the guy. I, I love him for it. I'd like to think if I was as funny as Adam Sandler and had the career, I'd, I'd try and bring my <laughs> mates with me. I'd try and bring my mates with me. Because it's an unbelievable thing to do. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Sandler could bring you in as the Kevin James. Mate, please. Oh, I wish I was as funny as Kevin James. <laughs> Fuck, that guy's awesome. I like. I don't I particularly you, like the films, but... You don't... You, here, here comes the boom isn't a classic for you. No. Um... <laughs> What a bag of shit that is. <laughs> Let's be honest, that's shocking, isn't it? Um, yeah, it wasn't good. If he wants to bring in a chubby British guy, if you ever listen to this, maybe we could get back at our man, Tony <laughs> Orlando. Yeah. Seems to have his uh, ear. The, I, we could have mentioned before, before we get to the uh, off-earth scenes, I, I quite like the scene of the... Not parents' evening, but him being called in, and the, the weird kind of bit where they're like, "Look, nobody really went to space. That was Russian. That was propaganda for the Russians to end the Cold War." But within that, where they're basically saying, "Look, you need to you need to discipline your daughter," and he says, "Well, I think there's a baseball game tomorrow. Ice cream. We'll take her down there." I thought that's just a cool scene in, in the middle of it, and all part of building. Although it shouldn't be a big thing. Look, this guy here cares about his daughter. Basically, is what the first almost hour of the film is trying to tell you. Do um, you think... Sorry. Sorry. No, 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 I was no, no. Say, do you think through the course of the film, the son should feel a little hard done by? I'll be honest, mate. The, that thought did not cross my mind, no. The end of the film, he doesn't even ask about how his what happened to his son. No, you just presume he's dead. Uh, I mean, uh, you probably shouldn't assume. You should at least ask. He does constantly say he just wants to get home for Murph. I mean, it's not bad for the guy. I can the see son why he's say, The son does say, "I'm done out here." In fairness, because he, he's not responded in twenty-two years. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing. I don't disagree with you, but the son does say that I'm done here. Sayonara. And, um, and Murph hasn't actually spoken to him for 22 years, so my man's done his shift. He's he, he's just clocked off and someone else has taken over. Well, you're only as good as your last game. I think I think it's fair that he gets a bit uh, kind of worked up towards the end because uh, it, it, it's all Murph with uh, Mr. McConaughey. Mm. Jack, if, if we kind of skip to go into space, the first kind of emotion really that we get in the film is uh, Cooper having to leave Murph behind and you are again almost kind of yelling at the screen to just tell her to kind of leave on good terms with her daddy's about to go away into space Yeah, and she refuses to, she turns her back throws the watch 
and then eventually runs outside, but it, it, it's too late. Yeah, it's. I guess like this is the kind of underlying tone throughout the film, isn't it? Where it's space, time, and love. Those are the well, gravity, space, time, and love. Those are the big like powers in the universe. And like, if Cooper didn't follow his love to get back to Murph at the end, he wouldn't have gone to the black hole, and he wouldn't have figured out a way to transmit how to harness the gravity yeah. from it and you also want to get Bran going to Edmund's planet who turns out it's actually habitable so it's kind of like that that's where it starts with the kind of that amount of force yeah. that ties yeah. you to one thing it, it is impressive though that and I guess it's a credit to that's involved that a lot of other people you could kind of have this first hour and you'd be a bit, I'm not sick of it, but I, I don't want to speak for everyone. I didn't feel bored, despite the fact not a lot happens until they go into space. No, it, is, th- it is a lot of setting up, like, we need to make you care about this guy before we send him off into space. Yeah. And they do that very well with very little, because you think about what you actually see. You see a couple of scenes with him kind of in the car chasing down these drones. Um, they mention the fact that... Um, the, the wife died. They, I don't believe they say how that happened, but they basically say, like, this is the dad stepping up. Um, he's trying to get his daughter on side. She has the more interest in science and just building that relationship until it's time to separate them and then have the two stories run alongside each other. Yeah, no, agreed. Like you said, you just don't feel bored. I think McConaughey, he, he wins an Oscar in this, doesn't he, for best actor is that right um you may need to check but what i what i did have down is basically um if you remember he's obviously been a great actor for years but he didn't really start getting his props until probably a year before this yeah he does a he does a film called mud where he's the lead role there and it just so happens that the christopher nolan basically sits down to watch this film and he says obviously he's aware of mcconaughey before that he watched and never he, he never thought that he would really kind of lead in a blockbuster kind of guy. Hmm. He sees this and then apparently comes out of it like, I need to work with this guy. Like this is this is my guy basically. Yeah. Um, they get together and to have a meeting to speak about the film, and apparently they, they just clicked. And uh, McConaughey says that they don't even talk about the film. Like he says he knows nothing more about the film when Nolan leaves the first time than he did going into the meeting. Like, they, they, they just hit it off like that. And they say they both kind of had the complete wrong impressions of each other. And McConaughey thought that Christopher Nolan was going to be kind of like a stickler. He's going to be hard to work with him, that he's kind of everything set in stone, when really he's meant to be one of the most flexible directors there are. Like, he, he welcomes everyone's input, and he's more than happy to change things if you come up with a better suggestion than what he's got there. Mm. Um, the impression that McConaughey gives off and this is probably the impression I would take from him was, is that he's this laid back guy he kind of he wouldn't be out of place playing like a stoner in like a 90s film with kind of his voice and his kind of <laughs> way he stands and everything but apparently as soon as it comes to acting he's kind of as nailed on as it is like he's a guy who knows all of his lines right down they say I think it was Naomi Watts but I didn't take that and he said the quote Someone said a quote about him basically saying, like, 
he wouldn't do a scene in which he just has to count to 10 without doing all of his research as to how dramatic this scene needed to be, how he was saying the number 10 and all of this. So it's probably, by the sounds of it, a meeting in the middle of the two minds, really. Yeah. And it just pays off perfectly with this film. Um, Definitely. I think you get the light-hearted but yet emotionally driven McConaughey that you haven't really seen before. Like It's a bit like Dallas Buyers Club where you, I saw another range to Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey that I just didn't yeah. really know was there until I saw it in front of me. For for the kind of uh, Joe Public, up to this point, for the career that he's had, he's really probably most well-known, and Keenan can maybe tell me otherwise, as being the guy that beats his chest in Wolf of Wall Street. Like, <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you showed most people in the public a picture of McConaughey, I don't know if you'd agree, Keenan, that's probably what they were pointing to up to this point where Interstellar does become a massive hit. And even now, that still may be what they've referred to. Magic Mike, baby. I've not seen it, so... Uh, Nor have I, but you can't deny that was a fucking phenomenon. I just think of Channing Tatum with that, so that's why I... Uh, Plays the cowboy in Magic Mike, as you would imagine, with that voice. He was in The Lincoln Lawyer before this. Um, I was yeah, to that's he... not like... I know, but I just... I don't know what you say about props. I mean, he's, he's made, some, made some good films before this. Dallas Buyers Club, again, that was... Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, I just um, mean in terms of, like... Uh, your man on the street having seen the kind of film, he wasn't getting the props that he starts I getting. I guess Dallas Buyers Club is probably the start where I don't know about everyone goes everyone goes mad for the so yeah. and so changed their body to meet. Well, mm. I guess well, Christopher Nolan obviously didn't think so because he said he didn't pay attention to until Mud. So Mud was before Dallas Buyers Club. Well, well there we go. He didn't get in soon enough. Um, Jack, the, the next scene I had down is the where they first go into the wormhole. Um, I, I gave you the YouTube description earlier. The YouTube description here, I don't know if the guy was having a bad day. The team flies into the wormhole is the description of this scene. Um, <laughs> everything you kind of hope for when you go into this Christopher Nolan film, you get kind of the beautiful visuals, you get the tension beforehand. And everything you could wish for, I guess. I wish I'd seen it in the cinema. Yeah, I did see it in the cinema, and it was brilliant. It, again, it was one of those movies that you attributed earlier about you you know you're here for, the, for a good movie. Yeah. I love it. And the effects are just so amazing. Like I just like how it is exactly how you imagine space to be. Yeah. You don't think of these, like, roaring engines that... Usually, like once you're in space, it's just like air, like canisters essentially that just propel you along. And I just the aesthetics of this film are just brilliant. I feel. Yeah, they are. Whether you want to believe this or not, the story goes that for the soundtrack of this, which is scored by Hans Zimmer, uh, Nolan wouldn't let him see any part of the film. He just asked him to essentially. He gave him the the, the kind of runtime roughly, so he could get enough music there and said, make what Interstellar means to you. And this is what you get for the rest of the film. So he hadn't seen any footage, they say. He, didn't, he hadn't been given the plot. He was just basically told, make what this means to you, and this is what you get for the film. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's so, it's so, it seems so tailor-made. That's actually incredible to hear that. 
the the way when they go into the wormhole, it, it's nice, isn't it? Where it's not just kind of free flowing, as I guess you'd assume not. They get the kind of turbulence just going through. There's the line where he tries steering the ship, doesn't he? And he's told essentially, you, there, there's no use even kind of attempting to make any changes here. Like you're not in control. And that's a large portion of the film as well, isn't it? Like there's yeah. something bigger than them. Um, yeah, I, I do like the way it comes full circle. It turns out they are that fifth power. They are yeah. that dimension. I feel, I feel, it was a mind fucking for the first one, and then you watched it back, <laughs> and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. Um, so the next one I have down now was now you've actually, sorry. sorry, now you've actually said about like due to the time slips and the Chinese people <laughs> creating the, the neutron star to power this. That now actually surprisingly makes this film make a bit more sense where yeah. in the future, it could be millions of years in the future and they finally resource the technology to be able to save Earth and they sent it back to when they needed to yeah. send it back to. I've, I've always struggled with, huh? And then it took a couple of watches <laughs> I got it. If you're making a, any film that has time travel in, you're basically shoehorning the line "time is relative," and as an audience, you're supposed to go, "Yeah, I get your point." And then that's kind of all the scientific explanation you need. Um, and they kind of do that in this, where they're like, "That time isn't." I think they say time isn't linear or something along those lines. Yeah. The, the next one, then we get our first introduction to an alien planet uh the first descent the the ocean planet the waves uh that i need glasses whichever one of them says i want to go closer to those mountains you can't be <laughs> trusting them up in space <laughs> i don't know what on earth they were seeing like the mountains that were hurtling towards them what i didn't get either was that you're looking at the one going away. It's not your first reaction then to look behind you to see if there's another one on its way. And they don't look back yet until I refuse to believe no one looks behind the ship and all that time that they're there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's baffling for what's supposed to be some of the best minds in the world. Trust we're saving the earth. <laughs> but did you, like, it, did you like that? It wasn't your standard Mars looking planet. So it wasn't, an orange planet rocky big craters in the ground this was this was what it is i guess they needed something to give them the reason to land there and i think they do reference the water beforehand but something a bit different and then you do get your first bit of drama for a while in how are we going to get off here yeah i just i, I liked the space slip in like versus the gravity and that's the reason as to why the like time there is lengthened i just i find i found all that bit so unbelievable yet believable so i just let it slide if that makes sense that that gave it real meaning for me that was as much as um like the, the fate of the earth is in their hands <laughs> that was the first bit that really gave me some level of I keep mean keep going to say some level of gravity to the situation, but you know what <laughs> I mean. Like the fact that they they literally the amount of time that they're dealing with it was short. It's, it's it's seven years for every hour, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
that was short enough that they have to do it, but long enough where it is just truly a significant portion of time. And I like that kind of split second feeling where you do kind of ask yourself, like, what would I do in this situation? Um, but the, the way they do it, it's really great. Like, it doesn't need to be the most complex thing to get you thinking, and that is something where everyone in the audience is kind of weighing that up. And then the point you get to after where they come up to the surface and they're told that they lost 22 years, that was the first real like thing for me where I knew I was in for that kind of film. Yeah, agreed. I mean, what I would do if it were me and... Obviously, you can get to Edmund's planet from that planet. Now that um, McConaughey, basically all his mates are dead, when he gets back there, his daughter's just about to die and she's old as fuck as it is. I wanted to just see what the universe turned into. I'll just go down to that planet every like, every other year, just like, propel myself forward another seven years and then just come back out. Because if you don't age, but everything else does, <laughs> you could just see so far into the future. It'd be brilliant. Yeah, I've got I've got some thoughts on that ending, which, which you'll get to. <laughs> but that the the scene, which is only a, a short scene in comparison, but where he's getting the years of messages, the emotion in that scene is brilliant. Because I did feel truly gutted for him as each message was going by, and they don't overwhelm you. It's not. I got married, I got divorced. I know there's a couple, like it's not big, but you get sprinkled in in that little time. He has his first uh, real girlfriend that he says is the one, and I know he has the baby that dies somewhere in the middle of there. But other than that, it's just kind of standard messages that he, he would be giving, but it's still just something that he's missing, which is why it adds that significance to it. Uh, I mentioned to Keenan yesterday a comparison to Click, where he starts missing all of the uh, kind of meaningless activities, but they pile up into that level of time that he's gutted he's missing. And that might be the only comparison you're going to get to an Adam Sandler film to Interstellar. But that level is, is really cool in how that's done. And you do see quite literally that time pass before your eyes. Yeah, and the emotion that it generates from just a screen as well. It's not like he's acting off anyone else. It's just complete emotion emanating from him I feel that that was such yeah. a powerful thing in that like you, like you said in that scene much easier when it's a bloke isn't it like we need to show his age dear give him a bit of a beard and then just take it off again <laughs> rather they can easily just go straight to kid to Jessica Chastain for uh, Murph yeah um, the next one then significantly and again another gut pug Professor Brand's confession on his deathbed that plan A was never really a plan. Um, he just needed to kind of keep everyone occupied while they send her dad off and a, a number of others to try and save the planet. <laughs> I, I, I didn't see that coming. I feel I, sh- I should have seen it coming. Like, but I, my thinking was at that point, okay, they might not make it back. But the intention was still that, although a, a stretch, this is a possibility. But mm. for Michael Caine to take that to his deathbed, the, the way they do it, whenever someone dies in the middle of kind of revealing that bombshell, 
is brilliant. And I guess this is what you paid a big bucks to Michael Caine for. Yeah, like I remember watching it for the first time and I just didn't see it coming at all. No. Um, I look back on it now and again, I'm at Harry Potter slash Return of the Jedi kind of levels where I love the film so much I will critique it. Where if she's been looking at that equation so long and it's something that <laughs> as simple as just not kind of rerunning the um, equations without using time as, as some sort of parameter. So I feel like you could have spotted that straight away. But the only credit on record you can give it film. is that Michael Caine is literally her teacher like in this situation. It's not like she was taught it and then she's putting it into practice. That's true, yeah. Like he, can... he says how he's going to like nurture her mind. So he, he may have just missed that part out of the classes. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Keenan, was, what did you think uh, at this point of the film? I think you text me right around this point where you said, mm-hmm. right, it's, better, it's better than you thought. I said, I don't want to say anything in case I kind of ruin where you are because it would take a lot of the film if I uh, ruin that. Did it catch you off guard? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it did, yeah. Sorry. Okay. So it could feel significant to you, I guess, would have been the question if you if you said yes. Um, so, yes and no. I actually did know. I said I'd never seen this film, but I actually knew one part about it. Um, um, was that it? I knew the bit where, do you know, when he comes back, no, when he comes back at the end. Um, oh, okay. And she's there in the bed, and she. I guess that could have happened. Like, um, no, but the plan, there. the plan A, plan B bit. I knew there was a way that they must have saved it for him to come back and for her of, of the. Yeah. I mean, they're talking extinct extinction in yeah. whatever. I actually didn't know the bit, the whole Jessica Chastain bit. That, so that how long the time frame had been. Like, yeah. I, I. I I spent the until Jessica Chastain popped up on the screen, it makes complete sense. So, or until they mentioned the 23 years, and then you realize she's got to get older. Yeah. I didn't know if it was going to be a case of you knew nothing, he was gone from she was a little girl to comes back. So, the whole sort of save the earth thing, I knew he was going to end up coming, knew he was going to end up coming back. Also, ruins ruined the um, Matt Damon trying to kill him bit for me, to be honest. Who did? No, no, the oh, me, no, me, no, no, sorry, no, me, me, no, when he yeah, goes back no, and sees his daughter at the end of his life, or when he's yeah. trying to, when he's headbutting him and he's like, <gasps> he's choking on the ammonia. Well, I, was, yeah. I was, I was quite convinced he was going to make it home. Yeah, just Jessica Chastain is brilliant at kind of turning up the intensity out of nowhere because it's like she's looking through your soul. The point when she says, uh, "Did you know?" I, did, did you know as well that kind of the, the plan point, the way she turns to the camera as she says that is, mm-hmm. is so good because if it adds so much to it, it feels heavier than perhaps it even did beforehand as he's dying on the deathbed as she's trying to wake him up at that point just to get more answers out of him. The betrayal. I've gone back, Lord, yeah, I've gone back and watched that small it's... bit. When she's yes. speaking to her dad, like when is she speaking to her and un- halfway to to the other Doctor Brown, it's like, eh, okay, you sort of this, this, she this asked switch up. his daughter, and then when she went, what about you, Dad? The actual betrayal, me, Jessica Justin, yeah. meant so unbelievable. Yeah, she she's quality. I didn't realise today until I was just kind of reading the 
things about her, what a character she is. I thought she was kind of uh, the the stay out of the limelight, just want to get in there and do my acting kind of thing. Mm. Um, but I think I, I sent you one earlier about her s- scrapping a bouncer to uh, defend Naomi Watts. Like I, did, I didn't think she she was back in the beef like that. <laughs> She's about him, mate. She she someone tweeted the clip to her and she said, "No one fucks with Naomi Watts." <laughs> Uh, she did. Someone said, she "Pull did, up." Yeah, she she did a uh, TikTok I saw shared on Twitter about of, her and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, cursing that all the careers she's worked for and people still just think she works in Jurassic Park. I don't know what mm. how Bryce uh, how it feels about that that she's kind of shitting on that a bit. But um, they are like they're both. So they both are aware. Yeah. They're like they both comparison. are aware that they're yeah because they they like they recognise it themselves yeah so they're just like yep um yeah, basically that's it apparently um I saw it into where she says that she's great friends with uh, Emily Blunt as well and she puts it as real friends not uh, fake Hollywood friends so uh, <laughs> them two WhatsApped as they listen to this podcast. <laughs> Mm. We'll see. Um, other scenes, only only a couple more. Uh, when they go onto Man's Planet, uh, Matt Damon. Uh, it's important, I think, to mention, and Jack could perhaps shed more light on this because he watched it in the cinema. Um, Matt Damon wasn't included in any of the marketing. He wasn't put on the poster, so his appearance was supposed to be an additional kind of catching the audience off guard as he's kind of awoken from his slumber. And it does work really well. You don't even see him precursed in the, when he's mentioned at NASA, and they so show I, the, so, the photos on the wall. I knew he was in the film because it was years after, but in the cinema, you must not have known that Matt, this was going to be Matt Damon. No, not at all. Oh yeah, I knew no, he was in the film because Byron told me. Yeah. yeah, Matt Damon Darby. Yeah, 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 very true. Um, he he very quickly does turn into an asshole, though, doesn't he? Like, um, him waking up and crying, I thought, was an interesting way of doing it. I, I would never have pictured that, but it, it does make perfect sense as to why he would be bawling his eyes out after he wakes up and realises where he is and kind of the situation he's in. Mm. So it, for what must be... Do you reckon from from when they wake him up to them leaving the planet? I reckon is about fifteen minutes. Yeah. In the grand scheme of the film, it's quite a short sequence. But he goes from you feeling bad for him to like, please just leave this guy here to die. In in no time. Mm. Ultimate, ultimate douchebag, isn't he? Yeah, that that the thing that was most uh, kind of chilling for me is when he turns back and he says I thought I could watch you go through this uh, but I can't and then he says do you see your children do you see them it's like geez Louise don't kick the man when he's done you've got to put some blame on Matthew McConaughey for leaving his helmet there after he's been headbutted for the third time his helmet's not yet shattered and he continues to let Matt Damon put the nut in yeah, you would have thought he would have kind of, 
he would have probably had the legs on him. He's been in like. Well, he doesn't even clock what's going on. He just he just keeps his head there to get rocks. He says that there's a 50-50% chance he's going to break your helmet too. Like, yeah. Why are you ta- why are you taking that chance? Yeah, you- Matt Damon's response to that's the best odds I've had in years. <laughs> if you watch back when um, my man Sam Eggington fought Paulie Malinaji, there's a point where Paulie, who's got notorious uh, pillow hands, lands about four or five flush punches in a row and Sam Eggington just kind of takes them and after a third one, you're like, you probably move your head here, but these aren't fast. You know what's happening. And it was like this because like, he knows what's coming and he just doesn't quite take in the gravity of the situation. And even when he does, he doesn't continue. Just a very odd, very odd bloke for what's meant to be the most intelligent man, I guess. One of the most intelligent on earth by the fact they trust him to get them out of this situation. And then do you, what do you think about how easy it is to turn brand because they reference the fact that she's in love with uh, Matt Damon's character very quickly. She she's prepared to leave him on the planet and go after. Cooper. No, she's not in love with Matt Damon's character. She's in love with the other character because McConaughey's character. No, not McConaughey's character. The no. character that went to the planet that actually was inhabitable. That's who she's in love with. Edmonds. Right, okay, I've missed that twice then, so... Yeah, because um, basically, <laughs> obviously when they have that um, showdown where they decide which planet to go to next, yeah. and she starts crying and says that, well, the next time you'll have to choose between seeing your daughters again or repopulating or like saving the planet or whatever, that I hope you're as objective in your thinking then. Because obviously, and then obviously that's when it pans the way it's her at the end, when she's put up like yeah well it looks like she's buried Edmonds oh yeah oh yeah she puts the shrine up doesn't she yeah did did you see this the same way I did Keenan or am I am I alone in seeing it that way because like, I thought she was in love with Matt Damon the, the two times I've watched this I think that that's what adds to, that's what adds to the love side of things isn't it so like if they'd followed um yeah Anne Hathaway's love then they would have got there but also yeah all right well i've missed i've missed that twice so uh <laughs> not a great look for me oh, i thought it was, new every day i thought mcconaughey was was slipping in not david i mean like, they they insinuate that in the end yeah she says like go and find brand basically like, mm. go and put in that work um put in that work <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dying you've got some grafting to do get out there <laughs> uh, the landing in the Tesseract slash make him stay scene. What did you think about, I know you referenced it slightly, the first time you saw it, Jack, slash the second time, because there's there seems to be two ways of thinking on this, and I'm probably somewhere in the middle if you kind of look. Some say it's a bit of a cop-out that maybe they didn't have the way of joining up how they were going to save it, how they didn't, and so they go down this way where there's people who say it's it's it's, it's hard to believe in a hard-to-believe film. Like, in a film that's about space travel and saving the world and all of this, him being kind of stuck in this kind of realm where he can then affect the future is a bit much for them. And some say about how beautiful the scene is. So, when I first watched it, I was probably in the first camp where I was like, who the hell's put this there? But the more I've watched it, 
the more I realised that in millions and millions of years into the future, there is definitely a possibility that we're going to have been able to have sent a probe into a black hole and figured out how to harness gravity, which then explains why they would put a wormhole next to Saturn. Now, you telling me the alternate plot line of the Chinese figuring out that technology and harnessing yeah. it and using it has actually helped me even more in the understanding that in the future they managed just to figure out their technology and how to do it. So you can split through dimensions and change time. And it's not about necessarily changing time itself, but the lineage of it where they show you that diagram where they get the piece of paper and then they push a pencil through it instead of going around it. So you're not actually altering anything, you're just taking a different route. And I guess that if you ever got into a black hole and you could harness the power of the black hole, then what else could you do? You could do so much more potentially. So I think you've explained it better than Christopher Nolan if uh, yeah, if you end up looking for another job. <laughs> yeah. I've heard of him. Your next assignment is going to be to explain Tenet. <laughs> yeah. God, I don't even know if I know how to do that. Yeah, I was, I was somewhere in the middle, I think, uh, as you said. Um, the more I've watched I, it, the easier it gets for me to kind of go, Yeah, oh, I liked it more the second time. The first time I watched it, I was kind of like, I, it didn't put me off the film. I think I, I, I messaged Alex after I watched it and I said, like, I don't think they could have made this film any more perfect. I don't like, know what they could have done mm. to make me think this was any better. Um, but I also did think they kind of had the plot and then it was, right, how do we get from here to here now? But it's like that gravity is being used as like a buzz term. Like they get that guy who's in the Hunger Games gets a boner over it when they when they say <laughs> gravity in the first bit. Yeah. And um, I guess that, again, is another sort of wink to the only way that they can really communicate is through that gravity of the bookcase and the go- being the ghost and all that kind of thing. So it's not as if like... Matthew McConaughey can just pop his head out the bookcase and go, Merv, right, hang on a minute. <laughs> this is what, this is what I'm uh, showing you here. Um, Do you think you should learn Morse code in case there's any kind of future situation? Because there, there's plenty of films where Morse code isn't a thing of the past. It's quite a, it gets brushed, it gets dished out. It saves you a lot of time. Yeah, no, it's true. I guess it goes to show, like, with all this new technology, they still need something like Morse code or binary to... Uh, to transmit i do kind of question though how you can like transmit this most complex data ever in binary which is <laughs> yeah. dot and dash and they've got this equation all figured out now yeah, this is why Murph is uh, the brain that she is that is true so quite a deep question for my uh, my kind of rounding up point of the film do you think it's a happy ending? I think it's intended as one. What do you think? No. Sorry, I was going to say, well, it's not, it's not un- like, yeah, right, he misses it, comes back, she's lived a good life, she's got 9,000 descendants, fuck me, the <laughs> hospital room is packed. <laughs> My Jesus, they'd be throwing them out for overcrowding. Um, like, it's, that's packed. The world's in a decent, the, Air for what's become the station or Cooper station is in a decent enough place, although it's spinny as fuck watching those kids try and play baseball on it. Um, <laughs> I think they had some effects left over from Inception. They're like, right, fucking oh, yeah, he's, he's given it, he's given a hotel scene. Um, but yeah, like the world's in a decent place, they've managed to survive and their world's going to prosper. 
he, he's got a bit for an halfway, so he's off out to try and find it. He even bring you on Tars back to life. And if we, I guess as well, it's, I was just about to say, again, if you go along that power of love route, it's, he uh, obviously has feelings for Anne Hathaway and it turns out if he goes and finds her, then he finds a plant they can all live on because hmm. she obviously takes her helmet off at the end, doesn't she? Well, if, if we do this now, just before we uh, get into the categories, so if we do the positives and negatives in terms of happiness and sadness for the ending to determine whether it should be a happy or sad ending. So happy camp, first port of call, I guess, but the population has been saved. They they found a way. This worked. Everyone's got safely. On the negative side, he's missed his entire child's life. Great, good. Mate, the mission was a success. If he don't go space, he doesn't learn these things to transmit back through time, etc., etc. So he's done his job. So no, I know. The, the greater good for sure is a happy ending. I mean, in terms of Cooper's personal happy ending. So he's the main character. Is it a happy ending for him? Like, he's got the personal accomplishment. He's going to save the world. Yeah, because his actual MO on this was to save his daughter's life. He wanted to save <coughs> her, and he ended up doing that because yeah. he got, <coughs> one, to see her again, and two, he got to know the happiness of he gave up his life for hers, and it meant something, as opposed yeah. to it not. And he seems, he, seems right. he seems all right with going back out to space to try and find your one after he gets the nod from his daughter. Yeah, well, that was kind of my thing. Like, she said, like, he literally missed her entire life. That was my only thing of, like, is it is it happy for him? He seems settled with it at the end, doesn't he? He has, he, yeah. he's upset throughout the film. He seems settled once he sees her again. Um I guess as well, when you look at it, that really, really is he, she doesn't send him any messages apart from the one she sent to Dr. Brand. So in about 100 years of him not being there, so he has received like a three-minute video clip from her. So oh, no, he does get one of us saying, we're now, we're, all, yeah. we're now the same age. Be great if you come back. Uh, of course. And yeah, he, he, does, he gets no positives from her. At no. least, like, like you said, at least the lad tries. He puts a shift in. Yeah. Well, this is what I mean. He doesn't even ask about him. Unless, I mean, maybe off camera, someone in the hospital says, like, this is what happened, just to get you up to date. But I, I mean, mean the, surely when you speak to her, you say... She doesn't mention it, does she? No, but surely you, I mean, you have to imagine, he goes, oh, your brother's still kicking about, is he? Oh, no, he's dead. Oh, it's sound. I mean, oh, I'd imagine the fact that he stayed around all that dust that long, that he didn't live very long, but... Uh, no. The other thing is, mind, he's... Like the whole point of the only reason he's able to go back is because of the daughter. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I, I'm not, not sticking up for him because I do think you're right. So he, the the son gets short shift, but the reason he's able to do all this is the daughter. He's, he's probably welcome in his right mind to be preoccupied by her <laughs> when he comes back to Earth. Mind the the son's had a rough time already, and then Jessica Chastain is dishing out like, well, let's just wait till the next kid dies. Yeah. That's ruthless. <laughs> that no, there's was, just no need. That was vital chat. Like, <laughs> Popping no. up out of nowhere. Get out of your house. <laughs> yeah. well, well, come on, I've got nothing else. Burns his crops, says... Face off, star. How's your dead son? Yeah. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> it's, it's, it's ruthless chat, isn't it, really? Right. Um, let's go in. So, Keenan, same question I asked you before. Is Interstellar rewatchable? 
No, I won't watch it again. Jack, same question. Again, this I've probably watched um, five films as many times, and I'm casting the Lord of the Rings and Indiana Jones trilogies and Star Wars all as one. Interstellar, Saving Private Ryan, um, and The Martian are all in my, I'll watch them at least twice a year bracket. How the fuck do you watch this twice in a year, man? I know, it's crazy, I'm, isn't it? How does he have the time key? They all have oh. Damon in as well. I understand the last year when he was on furlough for 12 months, right? But yeah. geez, he's, he's back on the job now. I absolutely love these <laughs> to films. To be fair, when, when, we, when he's taking that average of twice a year, he may have watched it plenty of times over that 12 months and it's just level. No, that's true. <laughs> Christ, that's just long shift, though. Right, let's, let's, um, let's do the categories and we'll go through here and uh, get into it. So... I know there's a couple. I don't think it's either is the most quotable of films, so that's why I haven't done the whole uh, take a while going through each one. Jack, if I start with you, which film did you prefer? Oh, no. Hmm. Oh. See, I know the categories, and I still didn't know my answer. Um, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to have to Davina you here. Yeah, I'm probably gonna. Oh, I'm gonna have to give it. I'm gonna have to give it to Interstellar. I think just because. You think it's been, it's been out for less time, so I think I've watched it less than I've watched Same Boy Ryan. Oh, it makes absolutely no sense, but I'm going. No, to... so I don't know which one you prefer now. <laughs> no, as in like. If, oh, no, if so on average, you, you've watched it more in a short space of time. Yeah, if you give if you give me both films and I haven't seen either for the first time, I think I'd pick Saving Boy Ryan, but because. I haven't had that enough time for it to get slightly tired yet with me. Yeah, We're not on rewatchability, though. I'm on which did you prefer? Yeah, I know. And that's what I mean. So they're both naked. So you prefer Interstellar? No, I might just abstain, you know. I, mean, I need an answer here. No, I'll go Interstellar. Keenan, which do you prefer? I don't think you did need an answer. Because I think you and I are going to go the same way. Saving Private Ryan. No, I prefer Interstellar. What? Yeah. Fucking snake! Are you absolute snake in the grass, man? Well, snake! I said previously, uh, I just told you, I, I, I truly think Interstellar is a masterpiece. But I, I think this is Christopher Nolan's masterpiece. Yeah, it is. You're telling me you Saving Private Ryan is not a masterpiece. I'm <coughs> not I'm not on the same level for me as Interstellar. I don't See, think I, I don't I don't think either of them are masterpieces. But that's more my well, own criteria. Well, but. I. Answer now, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I, I think Saving Private Ryan is more rewatchable. Yeah, so do and, I. Uh, Jack, what about you? Um, yeah, I feel like I would probably rewatch Saving Private Ryan more because the action scenes are so great. Like, you don't have to follow it, you can jump in and jump out potentially. Kind of like what you said with this, Keenan. I, I, I was surprised by the amount I enjoyed Saving Private Ryan. That's fucking mint. <laughs> so I'm not really, I'm not really a war film guy. Um, See, I'm the same. Flip, change the war film for film set in space, etc. And yeah. bar, barring like the barring the uh, the Avengers films that are in space, but um, I thought the same with Interstellar. I thought it was actually really good. Uh, yeah, it was stick, really good. Stick with you here, Keenan. Um, what do you think is the best moment slash scene across the two? Omaha Beach. Jack. Yeah, it's Omaha Beach. Well, as a single, as a singular piece of cinema. Yeah. 
I'll ask you, you don't have to do it now because we're, we're towards the end of the pod, but I'll ask you separately if you tell me, you might prefer others, but genuinely as you watch it, if you can tell me 10, 10 to 15 others that you think are better than that in cinema, I'd be like, okay, what? I would be surprised. Yeah, better individual scene? Yeah. The, Not that, yeah, like actually. From Project X? No. Come on. No. I said I did give you pref- I did give you pref- preference, but actually objectively looking at them, I actually don't think there's many better. Mate. It's ridiculously good. Do you improve that scene if you put the Steve Aoki pursuit of happiness over the top of it? Over the bit of uh, Omaha Beach. Yeah. Funnily enough, mate, while some lads' <laughs> intestines are hanging out, I don't need to see that. I don't need to listen to that drop. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fucking idiot, man. <laughs> You're a twat. <laughs> My favourite scene is the, is the sniper stand, the sniper standoff. I just uh, gobshite, man. Just picture the two in my head, and now I've got everything that shines and always going to be golden, which I guess is true. Um, best quote, Keen. Excuse me, sorry. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Any uh, particular? Sorry, I've actually just got to get my notes up for the first time this evening. Well, well, no. Do you have one Excuse away to the gym that you have, Jack? Um, tell her that when you found me, I was here and I was with the only brothers that I have left. Thought that was poignant. Yeah. Same boat, Ryan, obviously. Uh, I actually really like the speech uh, when he reads the, the letter from Abraham Lincoln. I think that's, that is very poignant. Um, mine was uh, Cooper, where he says, uh, we used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars, now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. That's plenty, actually. I've got our brands, uh, do you know, we're gentle into that good night. Yeah, that's a great poem. It is a great poem. I did like, um, someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was one of the only decent things we were able to put out of this god-awful shitty mess. I do, I do always like uh, mentioning uh, the title of the film. Yeah. I, there's a family the guy. Kick. There is. I was just going to say that, Jack. There's a family guy bit where he's like, hey. Yeah. Exactly. And every time someone says the name of the film, I now go, hey. Yeah, I do the same thing. A better example of uh, it's almost like a, some kind of hot tub time, time machine. machine. Yeah. <laughs> Keenan, who is the MVP across both films? I'm going to give it Captain Miller. Jack? The MVP, I'm giving it Coop. Yeah, I agree with you. Jack, who's the best side character? Um, Was a big fan of the Sarge in Saving Private Ryan. I've forgotten his name now. The guy who had the drug problem. Horvath. That's it. It just gets extra props for me. One, throwing his helmet at the guy when he's having a Mexican standoff. <laughs> and two, when he gets shot in the ass, he just carries on running like, oh, God damn it. Ah, I thought he stubbed his toe. There's he actually weird, like, throws his helmet the then as well. Yeah. yeah, where people just start checking their helmet. Um, <laughs> Keenan's being Steamboat Willie is uh, rash. It's also not true, you gobshite. Fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Mine, mine's actually up of which you, you might not think is, is much better. Why? What earth have you gone with him? I hate yeah. it. He's a bell. Uh, do you identify with the most? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> like, I feel like... 
just nice to see a, a character in a war film that isn't your traditional war film guy. I quite liked it. My side character is also from um, Saving Private Ryan. Merv Cooper gets a big shout out, but mine is uh, Private Ryan or Reuben. Edward Burns. Capazzo would have been my backup. Keenan, difficulty of adventure. Oh, yeah, it's interstellar, mate. Um, it's it's ridiculous. It's a, strange, it, it, it's a strange thing, isn't it? In terms of the adventure, if you ask me what, what, what I would rather live, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably take Murph's route because it it's, I know he goes through space and all, but he spends a lot less of that film in danger than the, bo- the boys in France do. I'm not sure I survive any of the engagements that they have in Saving Private Ryan, but I reckon I could probably float about on a ship for a while. Yeah, as long as you weren't the pilot, you could kind of just do your thing, wouldn't you? Yeah, obviously space in the black hole makes it interstellar, but it's a strange one because they're so far apart. Yeah. One is so grounded in realism. They they complete their mission with more effectiveness than they do in Saving Private Ryan also. Oh, they say there's, a, right, there's, right, a, there's a lot less, lot less enemies, mate. Yeah, well, I suppose. Probably less obstacles. Mother, they're battling Mother Nature. Like, well, they're, it... they're not battling nature. I uh, once they leave, they're not technically battling nature, are they? In space. But well, it's a strange thing. That, the only enemy they come up against is Doctor Man. He's fucking Matt Damon. Yeah, he, he does himself in. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, time Which, itself is, time, time is its biggest. It is their biggest enemy, essentially. I think it is interstellar. I think. Yeah, I would probably say. Saying that though, you could all attribute it to fate because they put that wormhole there to make sure that Coop would go through it because they mm. knew that Coop would sort it out. So you could argue, if we're going through a time relativity argument, that it was all planned out to be that way anyway. So, that's not even that's not even an argument, mate. Like, well, that's well, what well, he deduces in the film. He's like, "Oh yeah, shit, it was me." Well, that, that's what that's what that's what I'm saying. So he basically actually, gets to a point where he walks around like Coach Carter. Go, whoo! I tied that shit. Yeah, <laughs> that's what that book. That's what that scene when he's talking to Tarzan. He's just At like, "This is time, this is all me." We will be here all night if we're going through all that. So I'll take the answer of Interstellar. Oh, Jack, which film has more visual appeal? Oh. So you'd have to go Interstellar because of just the graphics, yeah. but the actual what they managed to do without CGI and Saving Private Ryan with the explosions and like just the muzzle flares and the the sound effects and the noise, the visual effects of the guns, like it's so difficult to choose. But I will go Interstellar because I feel like it was so interesting to watch. Keenan. Yeah, I think it's Interstellar as well. Yeah, these it's only I sound stupid because we've spoken about them for two and a half hours now. But when we're doing the categories, two films have never felt so different. I don't think. Not even Django and Toy Story. No, I think <laughs> gen- genuinely in my head this yeah. is a bigger gap because one yeah. is so grounded and so realistic, and one is yeah, yeah. just not by its very nature. Okay, it's okay. weird. Um. Jack, which film has the best soundtrack? Interstellar, by a mile. I think this one is the only one where it's a comfortable winner, I feel. Keenan? Yeah, it's Interstellar. I thought visual appeal was more easy than soundtrack, but I do agree with uh, the answer. 
What did you say? Um, what did you say about visual appeal? Visual oh, appeal. I thought. Yeah, I thought that was more comfortable. I, uh, no, I I agree with Jack because the there is an appeal. The there is like as horrible as it is, it's almost as though you can't turn away from Saving Private Ryan at certain, at certain points. Even the so, non space shots of Interstellar, though, there's a shot that sticks with me of the. Uh, Jessica, Jessica Chastain turning her back on the uh, flaming cornfield, and uh, just that—that that, all that corn, by the way, was uh, left over from uh, Man of Steel. I've never seen they, Man they, of Steel, but that's nice. They, they, they grew—they uh, grew five hundred pounds of of uh, corn <laughs> for that scene, and then rather than waste it, they uh, use it for Interstellar. Man of Steel didn't that come out way before? No, I don't think so. No. Oh, maybe it was Superman anyway. Returns. I suppose it was on like 2006. Did you no, not, just before, just before we go any further, did you not once tell me a bit of trivia about the bridge? Did you mention that on this pod? Did I just miss that? I couldn't believe so. I swear you had some, someone told me a piece of trivia about the bridge and I can't remember what it was. Well, I'd not seen the film, Ryan. So. Yeah. Okay, carry on, sorry. Jack, which film is more original? Instella. Definitely. Keenan? Yes, in the stellar. <laughs> I agree. Keenan, which film had the bigger impact? Saving Private Ryan. Jack? Yeah, I'd probably say Saving Private Ryan. I agree. Jack, which film has the better opening scene? Oh, that's Saving Private Ryan by, again, quite some distance. I do take some... Uh, uh, opening scene, I do think, is him just walking towards the... Uh, Greystones, but also the opening scene in Interstellar isn't much different. So I do, I do agree. Just uh, yeah, I'm talking about the Omaha I think Beach. We're kind of yeah, I think we're kind of uh, just pretending. Even the opening there. Even that opening is more impactful than the opening to Interstellar, though. I just said. I still, I still think it's Saving Private yeah. Ryan. I just yeah. think uh, when everyone thinks even, of. Even as I was saying, the opening scene. Yeah, we've kind of pretend that isn't there. Yeah, before I watched it again. When I think of the first scene of Saving Private Ryan, I think the moment they get when they're in the boats, you forget that there's like a three, three, three minutes before. Keenan, which film has the better ending? Saving Private Ryan. I'm going into Stella. <coughs> Jack, what do you think has the better ending? I'm giving it Saving Private Ryan on this one. I, I'm happy to admit, I have, it's been a long time since I'd watched this film. And at the end of Saving Private Ryan, genuinely, it got me, got me again yesterday. Earn it, it wound just, me up. Earn it was just such a good way to end it, and then pan back out to him. Yeah, it gets that, it. That wound me up. Why? Because I was already annoyed by the opening. Did they pretend it was a flashback? Well, so what? It's a hell of a way to end that film. Could have done without it. That's a chemistry. Saving Private Ryan. Jack. Yeah, same part, Ryan. I agree. Just tally up, I think it looks clear. So I'd say the chemistry, really, in Instellar is just Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> and it's, it's just him. It's just a one big, I, Him and Tars, him. basically. And yeah, so uh, Tars is actually probably my favourite side character in both movies, actually. <laughs> I should have given that. He was brilliant. Might have changed the uh, overall score if you'd said that earlier. It finishes 8-6 to Saving Private Ryan. So Saving Private nice. Ryan goes through to face Jurassic Park in the next round. Hurts to Talk see... Talk about blockbusters. Yeah, it hurts to see instead of go, but 
I feel that it's probably the right choice. Someone tried sending for me on Twitter this week saying uh, Saving Private Ryan was an adventure film. I have to give him a quick breakdown of uh, what an adventure film is. He quickly retracted. Display picture of some rashes of bacon. <laughs> playing at. What's he playing at? Um, so that ties up the week there. Next week, we have, again, two very different films. Uh, Black Panther against The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Now, looking forward to watching Black Panther again. I've actually started watching The Secret Life of Walter Mitty before now with Sarah, and I had to turn it off because I disliked it so much. Wow. Ah, nice. I've never so, seen it before, so... so it's it's actually, both, on, both on Disney+. Plus. It's actually one of the first films we've done that I've actively had a dislike against, apart from Never Back Down. Just, I can't believe the disrespect you're giving Ben Stiller there for a start. I'm not a massive Stiller fan. I'm not saying I hate him. Wow. I just don't go out of my way to watch his movies, I wouldn't say. I'll tell you now, I'd take Ben Stiller over Tom Hanks. What?! I'm a Ben Stiller guy, TK, I'll tell you. <laughs> That's outrageous. Oh, over Tom he was Hanks, once, he was once, fo- He was once fourth on my man crush list if an alien told me I had to make a top five. And I think well, at one point... I assume I'm on the bronze medal. <laughs> You're not, but... Uh, wow. Hurtful. Play a card, okay. right? Maybe. Well, I'm a lot Jax. warmer than Ben Stiller. I don't need to ask Jack what his is. He's got a uh, Tom Hardy calendar, which I... <laughs> Whenever I think of Ben Stiller, I just think of his cameo in Friends, where he shouts at the chicken duck if anyone watches Friends. Mm, I've right, um, me. I have seen it. I think of quite a few, actually. Randomly, The Heartbreak Kid with Marlene Aikerman is one I always think of. <laughs> Great film. Yeah. Um, Heartbreak Kid has such a different meaning to me now, though, if Byron will get that reference. Is it a Shawn Michaels reference? No, it's a kid we used to go to school with. Uh, doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I don't know this reference either. You must we'll know save... this reference. I don't, but we'll save it for another day. We've got <laughs> with over two and a half hours already. Let me just do these as quick fire questions for you for the uh, points to consider, so we won't spend long. Um, real star of the film, Saving Private Ryan. Is it Tom Hanks? Yes. Interstellar. Does Jessica Chastain take it from Matthew no. McConaughey? No, it's still cool. No. Okay, recasting one role. Give me John Voight as old Matt Damon. I don't really know. I'm taking the guy that plays Adam Sandler's son as an adult in Click, and he can sneak in to save him Private Ryan, and I'm going <laughs> to give that lad his big break. Don't even know his name, but... Um, it's nice to see Casey Affleck in uh, Interstellar. Yep. Big fan. Uh, okay. If the cast swapped, which film works best? Ooh. Saving Private Ryan into Interstellar. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. If you had to add Hayden Christensen to one and Christian Slater to the other, which would it be? Give me Hayden Christensen some of his intestines out on the beach. He's got priors from the end of uh, Revenge of the Sith, I suppose. Hmm. Um, if you had to add Harrison Ford to one and Paul Rudd to the other I can't believe they ever considered Harrison Ford in 1998 for this role he was considered for literally every film I understand that but like he was old 
I'd have Harrison Ford potentially as Michael Caine's character in Interstellar. That's about it. As far as I'd go. Better. No, I'd take Harrison Ford in Private Ryan, but not as Hanks' character. Who do you have him as? Maybe the general. Who reads Probably uh, Tom Sizemore's character. Fuck off. Brian Cranston oh, was, um, was a welcome sight for that cameo he has in. Um, which low-key piece of memorabilia would you take from each film? Oh, any of the guns from Saving Private Ryan. That would be cool. Flash up. The actual piece I thought of yesterday is something I can go out and buy. But I quite I really liked it. The Harrington jacket, that old, old Damon. Oh, my God. I was thinking of that. I think of that every time I watch the opening sequence of that film. Like, you know, light blue with a tartan inseam. That's actually mm-hmm. quite nice. You can buy them. They're, it's a Barracuda Harrington jacket. It's the guys who made like the original ones. Uh, Were you, you? You can go and buy them. But you get matching ones. I'm up for it. Were you referring to this category yesterday, Keenan, when you told me you'd like Matthew McConaughey's helmet? <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been waiting to say that? <laughs> Only just. Wait, but really, I, I actually don't believe you're quick enough to have thought of that just now. I, am, I, I, am. Under, I understand that. I genuinely that believe that's in your paper. research. Yeah, that is in. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I, I have lots of notes, but that, that wasn't one of them. Um, <laughs> and finally, if you had to make a spin-off TV series in the world of one of the films, which would it be? Are we going through lots of different uh, wormholes into Stellar Wars. No, I mean you just basically a war. Then Keenan, it turns into Star Trek, then doesn't it? Where they just go around those different worlds and explore. Oh, that's them. fine. Or even worse, it turns into like Stargate or some shit like that. Mm. That was actually about people teleporting through wormholes. Well, on that note, we'll uh, call it a day. So uh, thank you to anyone that has listened this far. Next week, um, myself, uh, Keenan, and maybe Sean will go through uh, Black Panther and the life of Walter Mitty. Um, I don't think Jack's available. Um, (laughs) And then a week later, we're into uh, Dark Knight Rises against Master and Commander. So... uh, the hits keep coming just after that. Avengers Infinity War against Zombieland. So uh, we keep mm. tracking on. We'll get there. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.